welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing? Welcome back. Well, we don't have time. Okay. <laughs> Who are our guests? All right. Uh, <laughs> our guests are editor-at-large Scott and I. Scott, hello. Hi. How are you? Good. All right. And then also, I don't remember if we have a specific title for this guy. He's a contributor. Well, he was... And- and still is, to some extent, our Sundance correspondent. That's true, yes. Usurped, though, recently. Now he's one of them. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's just, just another guy now. <laughs> just some right. guy who basically wandered in off the street, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, but he did go to Sundance, so I figured we put him on mic. It's Matt Warren. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Absolutely. So... Uh, today we're going to be talking about, and when we, we is generous, everyone else will be talking about their experiences at Sundance this year. Uh-huh. It's going to be very exciting. But first, David, it sounds like you've got something on your mind. Well, it's Sundance related and I, I wanted to get, this is about movies in general, but I thought of it at Sundance because, um, well, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the big award winner at Sundance was a movie called the birth of a nation. Oh yes. And that was, you know, well rounded film fans like us know there's already a movie called that what what's up <laughs> but i thought they were honoring that one <laughs> <laughs> but obviously calling this movie the birth of a nation is that's this is an intentional thing you know mm-hmm. right like that's correct david uh, re- <laughs> referencing this, uh, this other movie being i, uh, I, did, I don't the know the connection was said. intentional <laughs> <laughs> um but there was also a movie at uh, at Sundance called Christine, yeah. That you saw, right? No, no. you saw Kate plays like, Christine. Yeah. Yes, there were two movies about uh, the same person. Um, but Christine is a movie that is the true story of a, a killer car. No, this yeah. is the thing. <laughs> it's a true story of a woman who committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to put in the audience's mind? The goofy killer car movie. Well, because well, how did Christine. she? How did she kill herself? <laughs> <laughs> did she provoke the car? <laughs> uh, and I guess I just think about this every time there's a movie, uh, you know, like Crash. Yeah. Uh, like that is when there's already a movie that's in the public conscience that has the same name. I feel like you can't be too cavalier with calling your movie that. Well, what are some examples of that other than the ones you just mentioned? Well, it said Crash. Yeah. Uh, um, Heaven Can Wait. Hmm. There was the right. Lubitsch one and the one with Warren Beatty. Um, but I feel like the generational turnover on these is so fast that, like, when Crash came out, I didn't know about the Cronenberg movie. I learned about it because people were like, no, it's not the Cronenberg movie. Maybe that has to do with you being younger than Oh, yeah, I for am. sure. Yeah. Because I definitely knew <laughs> and right. had seen Crash. Um, yeah, it's but I'm just hot. saying that, hot. uh, <laughs> most people who are going to see Christine now aren't even going to think about the killer car movie. You don't think that Christine is enough of the culture that even if people haven't seen it, when you hear the, when you hear the name Christine, especially when talking about a movie, you, the first thing you think of isn't a killer car. Not I anyway. Huh? I'm with Scott. I like, I, I didn't even make that connection until you brought it up right well, now the yeah. absolute first thing i thought of was the killer car <laughs> so this is why you and i do a podcast <laughs> well and this is okay matt how old are you 33 33 okay so you're you're our age mm-hmm. so you're just out of the fucking loop but i've also never seen christine the killer mm. car movie mm. i've actually never seen it i've seen the subtitle seen, christine the killer car movie <laughs> the car that kills yes <laughs> i've seen the killer car movie called the car oh indeed yes yeah um, Kyle Anderson well, and I did a awesomely bad movies episode about that one. What well, what was that car's name? Ooh, um, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
you want an actual answer? No, <laughs> no I don't remember. Oh, does it actually have an answer? I, I no, I didn't, oh, okay. I didn't. I didn't actually watch the it's movie. The I'm car, sure it's just the car. It's yeah. like you know, right? Like Prince or Madonna. <laughs> it's absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, when uh, when I when a car has consciousness, it can call itself whatever it wants, and it is in fact the car. <laughs> but um, okay, yeah, it's. Uh, that's interesting that they, they didn't think about this. Yeah, I, these two I, I feel like it, Matt's asking for more examples, and I, I wish I could think of some off the top of my head because I, I feel like it happens f- fairly often. It just has to do with being a film buff. I know the names of a lot of movies, even if I haven't seen them. Yeah. And so I, I tend to think, uh, don't you have to take this into consideration? If you're going to mm. name a movie something, isn't there's part of your research like what other movies are called this I, this you know what I had this experience today and I wound up taking a <laughs> screenshot of this and I will be posting it at some point probably on our Facebook page um, so I was looking up uh, images for the film entertainment Google images turns out I should have specified Rick Alverson uh-huh. because what it led me to was a very different film, uh, a film that is vibrant and I think probably a Bollywood film and oh, just okay. ver- now a Bollywood that's it's, it's a different, it's a different culture, a different country. So I can understand using the, t- the term entertainment for a, a different thing. But, um, but at the same time, entertainment is also something of a, of a generic title. So I feel like that's a little bit more yeah, acceptable. Like, there's like, at least three movies that I could think of that are called bad company. (laughs) You know, that's but that, that kind of doesn't bother me because it's uh, called bad boys. Yeah, that's right. Um, But yeah, with movie titles becoming increasingly generic, like the, this year's Oscar nominations are terrible. It's like room, Brooklyn, Spotlight, <laughs> Carol. There's been like 40 different movies right. in like 40 years with these titles. Uh, and but it, movies are becoming like hip Los Angeles restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> One word. Cube, right? Uh, what else is there? Squirrel, Ludo bird, animal. Yeah, animal. Yeah. Uh, anyway, okay. What about uh, what about uh, advertisements? Do we oh, have any? We do actually, David. Thank you for asking. Say, are there any products that you want to tell our listeners about no absolutely i do okay Okay. and as it happens one of the products i want to tell about gave us some money recently uh you know it's a good coincidence though yeah pure coincidence uh so listeners this episode as i'm sure you know is brought to you by mubi a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Now, currently available on Mubi is a film that I love, and that is Peter Greenaway's The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Oh, man. It's a great movie, yeah. I I haven't seen that movie in years. I rem- unsurprisingly, I remember a lot of it. Yeah. Um I love its use of color. I love its use of cannibalism. Um <laughs> you know, that's the thing that I think most movies are missing. Yeah. Great color uh and cannibalism. And uh it's just and it's got a wonder it's you've got your Helen Mirren in there. You've got a, a deeply unpleasant Michael Gambon. You have a young Tim Roth in there. Uh and it's just a very I don't know, I, it's a film that I love i think i i think i saw it in film school did you see it 
as a function of a class? No, I I rented it back in high school. Oh wow! Yeah, did you like it in high school? Oh yeah, I still like it. Greenwood's yeah. got a new one. Maybe that's why they're putting this up on. Ah, movie. he's got entirely a new one out, possible um, about about Sergei Eisenstein. Oh, I don't think I knew that. That's a interesting. documentary or no? Something? It's um, so Sergei Eisenstein did eventually in like uh, the early '30s make a movie in Mexico. I don't know if it ever got finished mm-hmm. or came out i could be uh, I, I barely know what this movie is about yeah but peter Grinnell has made a movie a f- fictional imagining of yeah. sergey eisenstein making a movie in mexico that huh. sounds great yeah it's uh listeners if there's ever uh, for some reason i've i found myself watching uh on youtube um huh, watching uh like video game reviews <laughs> i don't i have my most recent console is a Super Nintendo. I don't know why I care at all, but I like to keep my finger on the pulse of an industry I don't give a shit about, apparently. But um, but they talk about uh, certain games being a console seller, mm-hmm. which is this game is only available for like an Xbox, whatever it is now. Right. Um, and so if it's available only on that, I is the idea of I would buy that console solely for that game. Okay. Listeners, the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover is a console seller for movie. All right. Go watch a uh, get movie, watch the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover, and then stick around for the other 29 wonderful films. And here's the thing. I know what you're saying. You're saying, Oh my gosh, movie sounds wonderful, but I don't want to pay for the first month. Listeners. It is your lucky day. <laughs> Because since you are fans of us, you can try Mubi free for one month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. Uh, and also make sure to use tweakedaudio.com earbuds. Uh, make sure to first buy them, then use them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're uh, a sponsor, but we also uh, use them. Uh, they look great and they sound great. They're professional quality earbuds. Uh, they're already available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. Uh, but because you're so cool, um, you can use the offer code pretension at checkout and get them for one third off that already low, low price and uh, no shipping charges. That's tweakedaudio.com offer code pretension let's get into it shall we indeed you know bob's burgers recently did a t- uh, episode that was a title parody of the cook the thief's wife and her lover what was it do you know uh let's see it was i just looked it up is the cook the steve the gale and her lover all right it's a fine episode bob's burgers <laughs> do they have yeah. like a, the color thing in there as well uh, no oh that's, that's the of their parody that is unfortunate <laughs> yes um and Rob uh, Rob Hubel was the voice. That's of right. Me. Yeah, I watched that episode. I don't watch every Bob's Burgers. I happen to see that one. It still holds up. That show, six seasons since, still goes um, strong. Linda is maybe one of my favorite characters on TV. <laughs> oh yeah, I've ever <laughs> she's one of the great creations. Uh, yeah, she's she's fantastic. Um, <laughs> well, we're already off track, but the episode <laughs> where she it's like the the prom, and she says that uh, she's going to name Bob King Chaperone, <laughs> and he's like, I don't think they have, there's no such thing as a Chaperone King. Right. And she's like, well, there wasn't a raccoon, uh, the, or the, the raccoons in the back alley didn't have a king until I picked a favorite. His name's King Trashman, and he's gay. He's like, he's gay? She goes, yeah, he has a little boyfriend that just got married. Um, that's one of the funniest things that's ever happened on television. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's talk about Sundance. Um, do we have any general thoughts? Now, you, which is Matt, this is what your 15th Sundance oh, or 20th, 20th, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so, well, you know, depending on various, various levels <coughs> of attendance and involvement over the years, but you know, I've been around for maybe about 20 years, but I'm interested to hear from you two guys as first timers, what your impressions 
were of the festival and of Park City and all that? Well, my impression was, first off, and I, I had a great time, but also the the press and industry screenings are in one, you know, general location. They're at the uh, the Holiday Village and the the Yarrow at the Doubletree across the parking lot from the Holiday Village. Yeah. And so I spent so much of my time there that, like, mostly I, I made it to a couple movies at the Eccles and a couple movies at the Mark. But as far as seeing Park City and seeing the sprawl of the festival, it was only when I made a choice to do so. Right. You know, I, only, I went to headquarters to, like... Not to see anything, but I went to the Marriott. Oh, I had to go there at the beginning to uh, pick up my stuff. But then I went free magazines. They have (laughs) an awesome spread of like free American cinematographer magazine and Hollywood Reporter and all that shit. Um, But then I sat at the at the bar at the Marriott to do some writing and sort of take in being in the 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 epicenter or at least the headquarters. And then the only reason I went to Main Street was because I took an evening off of watching movies to go have. Uh, dinner with a uh, friend of the show, Dan Gvozdin, mm-hmm. and we ended up having a, having like a two and a half hour uh, <laughs> pizza and beer dinner. Where we just talked about movies and comic books, and it was a blast. It was <laughs> outside of movies. It was one of my favorite Sundance. Where'd you guys do that? Red banjo? Um, no, it was. Uh, it was. It, I swear the place was called like Pizza and Noodles. Oh yeah, do you know that place? Yeah, that place sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good place to have a conversation. I, I've been there maybe once. Yeah, and, you know. 30, 30 years of did you get the pizza or the noodles yeah oh i think i got a pizza shaped noodle oh my gosh <laughs> yeah. you didn't hear me go off about how great the pizza is it was fine <laughs> the pizza was fine yeah it was a good time because i was hanging out with dan um but yeah it, i'm really glad uh, and then i'll t- turn it over to scott uh, i'm really glad that um i my first year was a year when we had stereotypical Sundance weather. <laughs> like oh, there yeah. was tons of snow on the ground and then it snowed a fair amount. Including mm-hmm. that night I went to main street, it, like for about half an hour there, it was really, really coming down. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad I got that part of the experience. Scott for Sundance. Uh, I loved it. Uh, I went to all the major venues except for the Mark, which we were staying by. So I feel like I kind of <laughs> saw the town. Uh, it's a beautiful Christmas village of a town. Uh-huh. Everywhere you turn, every photo I sent my girlfriend, she's like, it looks like a screensaver. And it does. Uh-huh. It's beautiful everywhere. Oh, yeah. There's, and sometimes, <laughs> I know I said that you're flying talk. toasters. Like, <laughs> 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 uh, um, the ski slopes, yeah. which are like, the, the town is, it's not like, it, it's right at the bottom of the ski slopes. It almost feels like, it looks like you could ski down the slope and into <laughs> one of the, into the, one of the movie theaters. But uh, some of them, they, keep i guess letting you ski after the sun sets they must it's lit up yeah you've got you can't really see anything it's pitch black except you've got these snaking like well-lit uh snow trails on the side of the mountains it's really striking uh anyway Uh, but yeah the movies were incredible i saw one of my favorite movies of the year that'll probably remain so and several others that were amazing I met a ton of people that I've known online for years. I like you, um, I like this tease we're getting. At, yeah, uh, <laughs> I know how radio works. Um, yeah, no, I really couldn't have had a better time for being only like being there four days and running myself into the ground. I really couldn't have had a better time. All right. Uh, again, let's get into it, shall we? Uh, we're just going to go through the movies alphabetically. Uh, there are a ton of them, so we are not going to dwell on any um, a- except for when we get to the ones that really want you to know about. 
<laughs> either because we really loved them or I guess because we really hated them. <laughs> that might be worth talking about. I have a few of those. Yeah. Um, so let's... Uh, so I feel like my, my role here could be as almost like timekeeper. I would love that, actually. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, you know, so... Like, like wave a flashlight from the corner of the room. No, I'm just going to snap our time and up. say like, Hey, come on. We, we've all got places to be. So we are starting with a movie called, uh, ironically, the first, not ironically, well, what's the movie? Counterintuitively. Oh, okay. The first movie we're talking about is called the fourth, which was the third movie I saw that day of four movies. Incidentally, none of this is I'll second me. that. <laughs> that's all I got. Yeah, sorry. That's true. That is all you got. Yeah. Um, okay. The fourth it is yes. enough. <laughs> the fourth is a movie by a guy who turns out to be a stand up comedian. It, as soon as he came on screen, I was like, I know this guy somewhere. It turns out I saw him at a terrible stand up show many weeks prior. Um, you're going to say his name. No, because I can't remember it. Uh, but he wrote, directed, and starred in the movie. Uh, he did a pretty good job, actually, especially on the writing and directing side. It's about this guy who's trying to put together a Fourth of July party, but everything keeps going wrong. He comes up with good incidents that go wrong, but it all kind of develops into this stand-up set, this long stand-up set of everybody sucks except for me. Um, but there's still some good bits in there. It's a great LA movie. It has lots of good observations for LA people who can look at it and be like, I've been there. Um, but on the whole, it's, it's, I mean, it's a nice afternoon of a movie. It's not something I would say people didn't like need to see, but I enjoyed it well enough. Keeping with our numbers, 31, 31. I had a ticket for this one for the public, a public screening and I decided against, <laughs> you probably made the right call. Okay. I, I, uh, I, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about Rob Zombie, comma film director, because I've I've wanted to like him more than I have for maybe fifteen years at this point. But it's it's frustrating because I feel like it wouldn't take a whole lot for his movies to be a lot better than they are. Hmm. You know, just you know, toning down the sort of shrill, over the top dialogue and maybe just like holding the fucking camera steady for <laughs> for two seconds so you can kind of get a sense of the geography, but. Um, this is, this is sort of like, it felt like sort of, a him going back to devil's reject territory. Whereas I thought his last movie, which was, uh, Lords of Salem was mm-hmm. sort of, sort of interesting. And he, you kind of, he was kind of moving in the direction I was talk just talking about in that movie where he was kind of like settling in and letting it breathe a little bit more and letting it be a little quieter and more atmospheric. But this, this kind of felt like maybe he didn't get the response he wanted off of that movie. So he just kind of hit the reset button and it's sort of like a, a, a watered down version of the devil's rejects is, is kind of what I felt 31 was. So highly recommended or <laughs> I'd give it a pass. Okay. If you're wandering in any way, don't turn around. Co-produced <laughs> by a friend of the show. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. So, and we won't say who it is cause we don't want to alienate somebody who has enough money to produce the show and probably help <laughs> us out as well at some point. Yeah, there were a few movies at Sundance that this is I would know I'm, that Battleship Pretension is moving up in the world because there are a few movies at Sundance that w- were people that I know were uh, involved in some way. Yeah, I was looking uh, at the the cast for the fourth, and there's a couple people in it. Oh that, yeah, uh, sure. have been on the show. Yeah, so exciting. Uh, next up is Agnes Day. Is that how you say it? Yeah, sure. It was okay. titled something completely different on screen, so I don't know what, oh, really? where this title comes from. Yeah, it was Lay Innocence on screen. Uh, <laughs> this is a French movie uh, starring actually one of the women who started in Breathe, which was on my top ten list, which was the reason I kind of went to see it. But it's about this. Uh, I don't know if she's formerly a doctor because she keeps distancing herself from that title. But it's about a woman during World War II who is asked to help. Um, a nun give birth at this uh, convent 
the nun had been impregnated by an invading Russian soldier uh, who raped her. And it turns out that this convent has several nuns who are in the exact same position. And the convent isn't really sure what to do about it, isn't really sure what to do with the children once they're born, because that would bring all kinds of bad publicity and shame on the convent and probably get them cast off from the church. Um, and so it's kind of about them navigating their faith in really just a really hellish time uh, in Western Europe, particularly just after the war, but during uh, heavy, it seems like heavy Russian occupation in Poland. Um, but it's really, it's a really strong movie. And especially by the end, I was almost in tears because it really comes mm-hmm. together in a really beautiful way. Um, so I imagine it's getting some kind of distribution. The woman who directed it also directed, uh, what was that movie? Uh, damn it. Some movie that got distribution here. So I feel like she's, uh, she's got the hookup. So I really hope it comes out here and that people check it out under whatever title it may be released under. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Next up is All These sleep, Sleepless Nights. Yeah, this I went into because I w- realized I wasn't seeing enough documentaries, and this was in the documentary section. Only I'm not really sure if it's a documentary at all. There's nothing about it that if you're watching it seems like a documentary. It's about these uh, young Polish guys who are just kind of floating through their early 20s and in and out of relationships. And there are scenes that are clearly captured like within dance parties that are like vaguely documentary-esque. It's not like they put on these parties for the purpose of the movie. Um, but the structure of it is very narratively driven. And it's mostly about guys just hanging out and partying and having sex. And so if you're not on board with a party movie, this is a long sit. It's only an hour 40 minutes, but even though I was into it, it was a long sit. Is it possible you you watched a porno? Because <laughs> uh, you're there describing a, a documentary about this. And the like, sex I, wasn't that's that graphic. Possible. Oh, okay. All right. Um, yeah. But uh, I guess there are parts that maybe towed the line. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, uh, I think Vadim Rizov in his uh, review said that if you're not a party guy, this won't speak to you. I'm not a party guy, but I always kind of envied party people, so I enjoyed spending an hour and a half with them. Are you a party person, Matt? Um, Not currently. (laughs) Former party person? Uh, Perhaps formerly, yes. Perhaps. (laughs) I will neither confirm nor deny. (laughs) Yeah, I'd have to dig into the files and and exhume some transcripts, but no, I'm I'm pretty much a homebody these days. I'm 33. That's been established. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's just, just cat time. Wait, why was that movie called 31? I don't know. Okay. I, I, I don't remember. Maybe I they explained like it. 31 Maybe. people were killed in is something. It, in the I don't know. My theory time. is that it's Rob Zombie's 31st film. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like uh, Chicago with their album names. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's great. Um, Between but, Sea and Between Land. Between Sea and yeah. Land. So this was a world dramatic uh, competition entry. Um, came from Colombia, and it's kind of um, you know it's it's basically like sort of a disability drama, sort of like um, the Sea Inside, or mm-hmm. uh, you know it's about a th- this guy who kind of lives in this little uh, shanty village on the the water inlets, kind of around the coastline in Colombia. And he has some sort of like muscular disease. I forget if they uh, talk about what exactly is wrong with him, but he you know, he basically has like some some sort of neuro- neurological cerebral palsy type type thing that has him laid up, and it's kind of just about you know he has uh, he has a spirit that wants to soar, but you know he's confined to this sort of crippled body and this sort of you know uh, very just poor kind of kind of slum and. 
Um, so it hits, a, it hits a lot of those beats that you'd be familiar with from this sort of genre of movie. There's sort of a, a, a love interest that's, you know, sort of semi-unrequited because they have this disability in between them, and he has this complicated relationship with his mother, who's his primary caregiver. Um, and it's it's pretty good. It uh, I think the the most interesting thing about it was the setting, because the they are basically living, like I said, in this sort of weird floating like shanty village that almost kind of reminded me of mm. in um, Beasts of the Southern Wild, how they're kind of just in these sort of stick houses mm. over the water. And so kind of all takes place in this sort of maritime, uh, this sort of maritime like hovel community. And so that was, that was the aspect of the movie I found the most interesting, but, um, you know, it, uh, this, this sort of like heavy, heavy drama is not, not necessarily like my cup of tea in general, but, um, I thought it was, it was uh, pretty good for what it was. Uh, it's called Between Sea and Land. Uh, next up is the Blackout Experiments. Okay, so this was this uh, more more your cup of tea. This is more my <laughs> cup of tea, yeah, because this is a this is a horror documentary, which I think is a a really fun sort of micro genre. And um, you know, last year at Sundance, one of my favorite movies was uh, Ronnie Asher's um, The Nightmare. Yeah, and this is kind of tonally similar to that. And it's it's a documentary about uh, I don't know if you guys have you know, ever heard of these sort of weird, weird things where you'll pay like a group of people to like kidnap you and like hmm. give you this really intense experience. Yeah. Um, almost sort of, almost sort of like in a Tyler Durden fight club kind mm-hmm. of a way where they'll just like, you know, put you through this really just, or like the game. Like the, yeah. The, the, the game is actually something they reference in the movie. The subjects, that's mm-hmm. sort of a better touch point actually. Mm-hmm. So, it's sort of like um, it's this group called Blackout, and basically their clients will pay them, and Blackout will send them this sort of questionnaire, this like really personal questionnaire about um, you know digs into all of their insecurities and their fears oh, and their boy. phobias and gets really sort of like mind fucky, uh-huh. and then they'll sort of tailor like this customized experience for you. And so you'll be sent like a time and a location to report to, and you'll go there. And once you like sort of buzz them at the door, they'll grab you, bring you in, you know, uh, you know, throw like strip you naked, you know, throw shit in your face, like lock you, you know, lock you in a coffin, chain you up. Oh. You know, it 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 varies. You know, it, like you know, you see clips of a bunch of different sort of blackout experiences that different clients are are having and it's just a bunch of bunch of fucked up shit where like um you know there was one point where and they'll have like it's it's almost sort of sort of like a more intense like not scary farm sort of like <laughs> horror maze, you know but they'll, they'll have things where they'll like put a gun in your hand and like take you to a room where there's like a like a woman like crying and like begging for her life and like uh you know cajole you into like pulling the trigger to kill her <laughs> and stuff like that and so it's like psychological torture mixed with literal torture. Right. And, you know, this is something that these clients find very therapeutic in a weird way. Does it say how much they pay? No, it doesn't say. That's, that's too bad. That's the first thing I'd want to know. <laughs> yeah. But it's, uh, it's super interesting. It's, uh, and it's very, very creepy and very, very weird. Okay. 
let's move on to the only movie that Scott and I saw together. Yeah. Uh, Kelly Reichardt's Ooh. Certain Women. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking to him the whole movie. <laughs> Just disrupting the whole atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, David, what do you think about this part? <laughs> Who's that guy? <laughs> um, certain Women is a, uh, I guess, a, a triptych. Is that the word uh, we're looking for? Yeah. It's uh, three stories about uh, three or four um, women, depending on how you think about it, uh, all living in Montana. The stories. The story, like the narratives don't overlap, but you do see characters from yeah. other stories in. <clears throat> They're living in the same Montana is really what we're saying. Yes. And <laughs> m- mostly, I guess, around the Livingston area. Sure. Um, yeah, because I think we're in Livingston in two of them. OK. Um, anyway. Uh, now, I, I had heard, you know, a lot of my Sundance sort of. Um, strategery <laughs> was I, I had made a list that printed out the, the, the screenings that I had tickets for and the press screenings and, you know, highlighted stuff that I had was interested in seeing. And so every day I would have a loose idea of, I'm going to give this time and go to this. Um, but I would also be using Twitter to sort of help me make mm-hmm. last minute decisions. If I'm hearing stuff is good. And I had heard, um, I would say actually, I guess some mixed uh, things about certain women, but most of the negative things I heard about certain women were things that made me want to see it more. Oh, big time. Oh, yeah. um, basically, you know, uh, that it was slow, um, which is usually a big draw for me. <laughs> and also, I feel like, uh, but I, watching the movie, I don't know if this is your experience, Scott. Uh, maybe it's just because of the kind of movies I tend to watch. This didn't feel like a slow movie to no, me. No, totally. I think you talked about this on the show last week or something, just okay. about... Uh, going to slow movies in general and not finding them slow at all. Oh, right. Cause I was talking about slow West. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that was completely my experience with it as well. Uh, it's, I mean, it's not a long movie either, but it so enraptures you immediately. And these are the kind of movies that like, as much as I kind of felt bad for seeing a lot of the kind of bigger name movies. Once you see like a Kelly record movie, you remember why she's like considered one of the best in the game. Right. Because all these decisions that could be so labor some and so tired in anyone else's hands because her shot choices, her, the lighting she directs towards the, certainly the caliber of actors she gets and really the sound design I noticed was really kind of pushed me along in some of the films more, I mean, quiet to be generous sections. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this movie really worked for me. I mean, especially everyone's kind of highlighting the third story. I think rightfully so. The second story I'm still having some difficulty with, even though it stars Michelle Williams, my favorite actress in the entire world. Um, um, I really like the, the I will also agree the third one is the best, but I also really like the second, oh yeah. second story. Um, I especially like, because it does the three stories and then they each get a prologue. Uh, the epilogue. Uh, an epilogue. Yeah, the, the epilogue the for that really tied that one together yes. much more so. Yes, that, that, that one really works. Um, if you were comparing this to like another Kelly Reichardt movie, what would... I don't know Which if direction would you go? Is a good comparison. I think I feel like this is kind of new territory for her. Yeah, I guess it's so. really exciting for me anyway. Yeah. Night Moves was too, actually, her last movie. Um, I didn't see it. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, it's really great. good. It's really good. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned uh, a lot of things that uh, deserve mentioning, like like shot choice and sound design. But for me, to go back to the idea of a movie being slow, now I understand if you're coming off of, you know, 31 or whatever, <laughs> and you go see a movie like Certain Women, uh, I'm sure relatively little happens right in, in in the most um basic sense of the word but to me a movie's pacing is about its editing and so even though you can have uh, a movie like certain women that is not doesn't have a whole lot of cuts 
it establishes a pace that is um, consistent. Yeah, and and, and, and a rhythm. And, yeah, it's a rhythm mm-hmm. or a cadence is the word that I often like to use when I'm uh, writing reviews and trying to m- talk about this sort of idea uh, that becomes entrancing. I think is uh, sort of what you were talking about. Yeah. But, um, so it doesn't, uh, you know, 105 minutes, wherever it is whether it's a movie with a billion cuts or with two cuts, it's still going to take 105 minutes. So the Mm -hmm. idea of it being fast or slow is is kind of, it's all kind of, uh, in, in your head. But as long as to me, a movie that is unevenly edited will pass more slowly than a movie that establishes a cadence. So I think that's what keeps certain women from, uh, from being slow, even though, uh, again, if you're, depending on how you think about it yes i guess not that much happens but that's wrong actually because huge things happen in yeah. this movie especially like the first one has a gun yeah i was you gonna should, say everyone should like <laughs> people like movies with guns in it hell yeah jared harris that's got a gun in this in that's the, how audiences work <laughs> yeah um no i was gonna say that yeah the first story definitely sets up a more overtly thriller structure but i found the rest of it to, kind of tease out its narrative in a way that felt suspenseful. And I think that's also what kept me engaged. Yeah. Um, there's enough questions. I mean, the second story, like I didn't know what was going on in that story for about half of it, yeah. but even like the basic premise was, so just trying to tease out those details became its own kind of like momentum and suspense. And certainly the third one hinges on, uh, this sort of unspoken conflict and yeah. this answer to the question nobody's asking, but it's clearly there. Yeah. Um, I talked about it, whether it's a movie about three or four women. I think it's three stories and the three big names in each one are Laura Dern, Michelle Williams and Kristen Stewart. Right. But if you were to pick a protagonist for the third story, it wouldn't be Kristen Stewart. No. It would be Lily Gladstone. Yeah. Who is a revelation. Oh yeah. Um, she's incredible. Although I, I knew, I know her from, she was in a movie called winter in the blood, um, which I, uh, even though I saw it in a full theater, I feel like I'm the only person who saw it. Uh, cause I only saw it because I loved the slaughter rule, the, uh, the, uh, Smith brothers first movie. Um, and so I, uh, vaguely remembered her from winter in the blood, but this is, this performance in certain women, um, I'm hoping will at least among smart people like us, uh, put Lily Gladstone on the map because she's fantastic. Now we do need to move on. Thank you. But I have two points to make. Number one, to go back to what we were saying earlier, you mentioned night moves. Yeah. Night moves is a film, uh, with Gene Hackman in the 1970s. That is wonderful. I don't know if anybody has seen it. Yeah, it's good. I really love it. Um, and uh, and when the it's a Bob Seger song too, right? It sure is. I, <laughs> Actually, that's I think the, the the titular night moves boat in the movie in the oh, yeah. is probably named after that Bob Seger song. That's so that yeah. stands to reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so yeah, it uh, so that speaks to uh, and and when I first heard of the new night moves, I remember thinking like, well, pro- this doesn't look like a remake. <laughs> so I guess they're just using the the the, the term. Uh, and then secondly. Uh, Michelle Williams, your favorite actress in the whole world. Oh, I don't. Think I, I don't know that. about that. But okay, I I like her a great deal. Okay, uh, what? Uh, sorry, we've got other things to get to. Get to. What? Uh, what? What sparked that? Wendy and Lucy, big okay. time. Okay, yeah. Uh, one of my favorite. I'm not going to say my favorite, but Laura Dern is one of my favorite actresses in the whole world. Nothing wrong with that. Not only in certain women, but gets name checked very hilariously in Swiss Army Man. But we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do want to say one quick thing more about certain women, and that is that the third story, interestingly, all these are based off short stories by the same author, and in that short story, the protagonist of the third story was uh, a man, huh? which would drastically change the tenor of that story. Yeah, yeah, very much. Okay. Uh, complete unknown? 
Oh, yeah. Uh, so this has an amazing premise. Uh, it's about a woman played by Rachel. I always say Vice. How do we feel about that? I that's, tend to say Vice. Right? That's, that's how I've heard it, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're going um, with that. Yeah. I mean, speaking of favorite actresses of all time. She, yeah, she's great. Um, so she plays a mysterious woman who shows up to a party and say, gives this whole wonderful backstory and charms everybody. And Michael Shannon's like, I, you're not who you say you are which is a great setup for a movie uh, and is indeed the great setup for a great movie called Last Year at Mary and Bad. This movie, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, spends most of its time just giving her backstory in little bits for about 90 minutes. Uh, and that is an incredibly dull way to spend 90 minutes. Um, there are so many moments in it that are so seductive. There's a part where they visit uh, Rachel Weisz's character is a research scientist who's researching this like rare type of frogs in New York. And so when they go to a research facility, it's just full of these frogs. It's like one of those transportive moments I've seen in a movie in years. Uh, but that is like a very tiny section of a very laborious and exposition-heavy movie um, that I really, really wanted to be better and was really disappointed by. Um, more brief- frogs says nigh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll briefly mention uh, Embrace of the Serpent, even though... Hell yeah. You, Scott, you and I had both seen this previously. We didn't yeah. uh, see it at Sundance. We talked uh, about it in the AFI first episode. Uh, yes, but just to mention that it played Sundance, it's still great, and you can still read the review over at BattleshipRetention.com. And now it's Oscar-nominated. It is. It is Oscar-nominated. And, Oscar and it nominated. features friend of the show, <laughs> Brian Davis. Davis. Yes. Um... First girl I loved. Yeah, this was uh, this was one of mine, and this was probably my second favorite uh, movie that I saw at the festival. I thought it was just so well so well done, just across across the board, just really sophisticated, just screen screenwriting and uh, the acting in it is fantastic, and the direction is just very tight and very solid, and really delivers the story uh, with just maximum sort of clarity and empathy. Uh, it's basically about, um, uh, it's a story about these three teenagers in Chatsworth, not too far from here. Uh, and one of them, the lead, uh, is, uh, this, this sort of artsy young woman who works on the yearbook staff and she's just sort of like realizing, uh, within herself that she's gay and she's falling, uh, you know, she's becoming infatuated with this sort of popular softball player who, um, may or may not, you know, it kind of, as the story develops, it goes back and forth a little bit, uh, may or may not sort of feel the same way about her. And then the sort of third person in this love triangle is, um, uh, the, the, the lead girl's, um, best male friend who has, you know, has had like an unrequited crush on her for years and years and years. So it's a, it's a pretty simple setup just to sort of hear it, um, spelled out in just the basic ways, but it's, it's really just, it just felt very authentic to the teenage experience. It you know didn't feel condescending in any way towards these young people and it really felt um really felt like an authentic portrait of you know what it's like to be sort of a confused teenager wrestling with your emotions and your hormones and your infatuations uh you know in in this day and age um and it i also you know it's uh you know we're getting to an age with um you know gay and lesbian movies where you know it's become so sort of mainstreamed over you know, let's say like the last decade and a half that it really just does feel like, um, a, a really good, well-observed sort of, 
a comedy drama about a character who just happens to be gay instead of you know a, a gay movie necessarily. So I thought I thought it was outstanding. I really I really liked it a lot. Okay, I'm glad you liked it because now we're moving on to my least favorite movie. Um, well, maybe my it's uh, it's down there. There's no bad uh, movies at Sundance. <laughs> no, this was a bad one. And, but to listen, okay, it's called The Greasy Strangler. It played as part of the Midnight thing. It's a, uh, oh, I guess. I mean, it's it's not a horror movie because it's not scary at all. But it's a horror <laughs> horror movie in that it's about. A it's a horrid serial. movie. <laughs> it is oh. a horror. Um, and it's it's a it's a sort of like <laughs> aggressively weird for weird sake anti comedy movie, and it has its defenders, including people who have been on this podcast multiple times. Um, and I respect their opinions, but looking I, at you, Steven Tobolowski, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, a, there's, uh, something that I have believed to be, to be true and have said on this podcast, as long as we've been doing this podcast, film critics in general, I love them. That's, you know, what, what I, I, I love reading film critics. I, I love what they stand for in general film critics are bad at comedy, <laughs> bad at understanding <laughs> comedy. They're usually behind the, the curve uh, on comedy. And I think the fact that there are critics embracing Greasy Strangler shows that they haven't been paying attention to comedy for the last 10 years because this is a pointless, uh, shallow, hollow echo of an echo of an echo of what Tim and Eric uh, were doing so much better. Okay. Um uh, a, 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 a decade ago um it's it's so trying so hard to be gross and outrageous and it is there are gross there's gross imagery but mostly i just found myself bored by it because i've i've seen this kind of stuff work better hmm. um and uh just i i i can't imagine to whom i would recommend the greasy strangler because um, you're either going to be incredibly grossed out um, uh, by it, or you're going to be like me, uh, bored or annoyed by it. I'm reminded mm-hmm. of um, one of the thoughts that I had years ago when The Walking Dead first uh, first premiered, uh, and TV critics were talking about like, oh, you know, what's fascinating is the real drama doesn't come from the zombies. It comes from the interaction of the survivors. Like, yeah, it's 19 fucking 68. And then I realized, oh yeah, I guess if you're TV, this is a new idea for you. Right. But it's it, from the word go of zombie <laughs> movies. Uh, that has been the case. So yeah, it's just fascinating when you read somebody who just, you know, and it, and I'm sure we're all behind the times on something. Um, sure. Uh, yeah. But yeah, stuff I don't get, but yeah, it's especially with comedy where so much of it is about like what's unexpected. And if a movie is just doing what things have been doing for 10 years, unexpected is absolutely not what it is. Yeah. Especially if it's something that's trying to be specifically weird and silly and absurd and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, hmm. yeah, I, it's, it, I didn't say what the story is. There's a father and son who give uh, low rent walking disco themed tours of Los Angeles. Uh, there's also a serial killer on the loose called the greasy strangler because he's go- covered in grease, like food, bacon, grease oh. and, and chokes people to death. Uh, and it's the father. There's the movie sort of plays around with the idea that we don't know it's the father, but it's at first, but it's very quickly, 
uh, clear that, yes, the father of this father-son duo is the Greasy Strangler. Do they make a big um, deal about how it's actually probably very difficult to strangle somebody if you're covered in grease? Uh, no, they don't. <laughs> they just make, they really slop it. It's really, really gross. Um, <sighs> but it's fun. <laughs> um, it's just boring. They waste a good title there. I'll say that. Yeah. Um, all right. But now we get to move into a really great movie. Movie. You know. I, you know. You never know until you see a movie whether you're going to like it. But this movie had been playing the circuit for uh, the festival circuit for quite some time, and I loved Jeremy Solnier's last film, Blue Ruin. So I here, felt here. if there was anything yeah. that I saw at Sundance that I felt going in was a sure thing, uh, and then didn't disappoint me. It was Green Room, which you also saw, right? Yeah, Matt? yeah, and uh, this this is my favorite thing that I saw at Sundance this year. This this yeah. one's right up my alley. I thought it was super dope. It's great. <laughs> it is great. Um, for this story, for people, I, mean, I imagine, I think probably most of the people who would listen to this podcast are probably also people who keep up on what movies are playing festivals, and so have probably heard of Green Room and heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if not, um, the story is. Uh, that a punk band desperate for cash takes a afternoon, like a matinee gig yeah. at, at a, a neo-Nazi bar, a, a real, a real uh, puppet show and spinal tap type, <laughs> type <laughs> booking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and so they play to a bunch of, uh, neo-Nazis. Um, and then while being rushed out the door, they, um, one of them played by Anton Yelchin uh, witnesses the aftermath of a murder that has taken place while they were on stage. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, the, now the neo-Nazis can't let them leave. And so they are, it sort of becomes like a real Bravo uh, assault on precinct 13 type of thing. Yeah, where assault on precinct 13 was the thing I was thinking yeah. the, the whole time. Um, yeah. Where they're, they're trapped in this club specifically in the green room. Um, while um, a bunch of neo-Nazis led by Patrick Stewart yeah. um, are trying to kill them. That sounds so wonderful. Yeah, it's, and, it's pretty rad, and it, it has really great action and violence and gore effects, but nothing, um, you know, not to not to go back to 31 and slag on that or anything, but the Green Room just does all of that so much, so much better and with such, you know, lucidity and clarity and... Yeah really gets the geography of this weird sort of neo-Nazi biker bar club down. So you, you know where the characters are, you know where they need to get to, to be safe. And then, you know, they're even sort of parts of this place that open up that you didn't, you didn't expect that kind of are, are game changers that sort of shift the, uh, shift the, the ground underneath yeah. our characters feet, like literally pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the um, film is both rad and super dope. Yeah, it's rad and super dope. Okay, it's also warning. And people who saw Blue Ruin will know it's it's very graphic and it's when it comes to gore and stuff. But not, I mean, it's not like a splatter movie. No, it's because it's all motivated and realistic. But in some cases, all the more sickening for being yeah. realistic. You know, if you want to see, I wonder what it would look like if a guy got shot in the side of the face with a buckshot, like <laughs> oh. shotgun, like it's really gross. Or if someone stuck their hand out of a door and had oh. it attacked by a bunch of machete wielding Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. There was, um, <laughs> yeah, there was a woman in my row who was, uh, I think, I think she enjoyed the movie, but was, um, viscerally uh, and loudly reacting to every moment of gore. And I, uh, that I kind of, it kind of helped the experience actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's fantastic. Jeremy Saulnier again, um, blue room was great. This is great. It's Patrick Stewart, Anton Yelchin, Aaliyah Shawcat, always great. Uh, Imogen Poots, mm-hmm. um, Macon Blair from blue ruin mm-hmm. is one of the Nazis. 
Uh, there's some other recognizable uh, faces in there. Yeah, those are the major ones, though. Yeah. All right, uh, let's move on. Um, I lost my list here. Uh, to Hello, Love, and Sex. Yeah, this is a movie I saw because I couldn't get into the press and industry screening of Birth of a Nation, unfortunately. Uh, but this is a Lebanese romantic comedy, and I, I like good romantic comedy, so I was like, sure, why not? Uh, I don't know if it's just a cultural barrier or what, but I could not get into this movie. It's... Uh, about these four different couples, I want to say, um, who are trying to kind of navigate various issues within their marriages or relationships uh, while sticking within very strict Muslim code. Great setup for romantic comedy. Uh, the director, when he introduced it, said he started to write as a drama and just eventually it became a comedy. It really feels like he couldn't find his footing in either. <laughs> um, so there's some s- solid jokes in there, but it becomes like, disproportionately dramatic at some points for how silly it's been. And again, I, I want to give it the benefit of the doubt. It could just be a cultural thing that I just in my stupid white brain just can't get into. <laughs> um, but I really did not enjoy it. Okay. Uh, let's move on to hunt for the wilder people, um, which I would put in my, uh, top three, uh, certain women hunt for the wilder people. And one we'll get to, uh, later are my top three of the festival. Um, and this is going to sound maybe condescending, or insulting, but it's not how I mean it. But for uh, a generation like like ours, um, especially movie geek uh, generation like ours, uh, who love, who still holds on to this sort of corny kids movies from their past, <laughs> Hunt for the Wilder People is essentially a good grown up version of a kid's adventure story. Yeah. Like it's, it's like, imagine if the Goonies were good and held up and they said, fuck a lot in it. Like, that's the kind of movie that I'm for the world. So, so it's like a movie for like Amblin assholes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the story is, um, there's a, there's a kid who's a foster kid who, um, gets adopted by a couple who live out in the, uh, New Zealand bush. Um, and, uh, the, husband of that uh, couple is uh, Sam Neill and due to certain uh, circumstances and a series of events um, they end up living in the woods uh, for a long time and when they try to come out they realize that all of New Zealand thinks that he, Sam Neill has kidnapped this kid mm-hmm. and so now they're fugitives <laughs> and so the, they essentially for months live in the in the woods evading uh police and uh other people who are trying to get rewards it's like, like badlands yeah <laughs> yeah um it's uh it, it's a lot of fun i think if you have like a 9 10 11 year old kid and you are okay with them hearing uh salty <laughs> language they, they would love this movie this is a, i think a kid would love this movie there's just certain prudish parents who's not who are because they because again they say fuck a lot in the movie um it's not uh, it, you know it, it's not going to get the pg or pg-13 uh that's going to ensure those it gets in front of those viewers but it is it's a it's a movie that is fun for the whole family as long as that family is not stuck up about certain words it's a taika waititi right yeah yeah okay yeah and he that, um, that guy's pretty good yes uh and he has he has a bit uh a bit part in it where he plays a rambling priest um it's uh yeah uh and and then um what's the uh murray from uh flight of the concords reese darby, uh, reese darby. Reese darby also mm-hmm. has a, a a couple scene um sort of uh, cameo did, did you guys hear what the the sequel to what we do in the shadows is going to be called uh it's, we yeah what is it it's it's 
it's going to follow the story of Reese Darby and his werewolves, and the the movie's going to be called Werewolves, <laughs> <laughs> which is maybe the best. Yeah, I, I don't think there's another movie with that title with that particular <laughs> yeah. title. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, uh, now I loved Hunt for the Wilder People. Now Matt, I know you love <laughs> the Illinois Parables. Oh woof! <laughs> um, well, a little context. I uh, I took a little time out during the festival to go skiing a couple of days because you know why the hell not? Uh, so this was me rolling into this sort of abstract avant-garde documentary about Illinois history after a long day. Um, basically tuckering tuckering my little self out on the ski hill <laughs> and so i go in and sit down and i'm about ready to pass out to begin with and then it's basically a series uh th- this film like i said it's an avant-garde documentary it's basically a, a series of uh maybe maybe like 12 or 13 sort of short short just little tone poems about uh v- different different chapters in uh the history of uh of the state of illinois including like the mormon settlement in nauvoo and uh and it kind of moves chronologically through time so i think it starts out with um some some native american spiritual stuff in the beginning and then kind of culminates in um in these in this vignette it's probably the best one in the whole movie about uh sort of a black Panthers shootout with the cops in 1970s Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just felt like there wasn't uh, I couldn't, you know, and I, I like weird movies and I like movies that play with different tones and textures and filmmaking techniques. I mean, one of my favorite films of, of last year's festival and Scott, I don't think you liked this movie very much, but it was uh, uh, the Forbidden Room. Uh, oh, yeah. Guy, Guy Man's Forbidden Room. I mean, room, it had so. some good parts to it. Yeah, so, so like, you know, I, I love that, and that's an example of, like, a movie that really, you know, uh, really mashes up a whole bunch of different sort of techniques, but I, I thought this was, uh, you know, so I'm not averse to stuff like that, but I thought this Illinois Parables movie was, um, you know, put it back in the... Put it back in the oven. Um, <laughs> now, I saw an episode of Diner Drive-Ins and Dives. Uh-huh. Guy Fieri went to a, uh, a, a, a an airplane hangar in Springfield, Illinois, that had been converted into a diner. Okay. Is that in the movie? Um, <laughs> I think that's the third chapter. Okay. <laughs> um, next up for me is uh, James Seamus' Indignation, which um, I'm still on the fence about whether or not I should have seen because it was I, I had time for one movie my last morning there before I had to meet my shuttle, and I'm still thinking I maybe could have made it to the Spike Lee Michael Jackson documentary, the sort oh, of yeah. follow up to Bad Twenty Five because Bad Twenty Five is amazing, uh, and this one is about uh, I guess about Off the Wall um, and the lead up to Off the Wall, um, a prequel, and yeah. Um, it would have been cutting it close. I still think I could have made it, but I did end up liking indignation. I saw it because mm-hmm. it was people who had seen it the night before were saying good things on Twitter. And it was at the Mark, which is five minutes from mm-hmm. uh, the condo that we were staying at. Um, that's also, you, that, yeah, that's also the best venue. I think you think so. I think so. that's my favorite one. Okay. The Mark, I saw yeah. two things there. Mm-hmm. It's not, 
yeah, I, I definitely prefer it to the Eccles. As much as I like the Eccles because I was like there for the first, we'll get to the later, I was there for the very first screening at the Eccles opening night. And that mm-hmm. was great because I sat up front and Robert Redford was there. And it was like, it had a great feeling of like, oh, I'm kicking off the festival. Like this is, I guess the Eccles has the highest, it seats the most people, I guess. Yeah. So yeah. That's, it's sort of the, the big one. But the Eccles doesn't make sense because it's a huge auditorium <laughs> that only has aisles on the two sides so the seats are just you stand at one end and it looks like it's like the row is just like curving off into the horizon like something out of a roy anderson movie and like if you have to like if you have to inconvenience so many people in le- if you're not saving, i mean if you're well and they'll leave the seats open in the middle so you got to go all the way to the middle to find yeah. out if they're not saving it for anybody like right. oh i guess i'll go back yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's essentially it's so poorly. To, it's a huge. Just imagine a huge sea of seats where they're the only the only entrances are on the outside. Uh, it's really weird. It probably is like um, seventy seats wide at least. Yeah, it's crazy. I feel like we're back into the blackout experiments now. Yeah, that seems like a thing that would bother me. Um, but yeah, that's not what I saw. Indignation. I saw it at, at, at the mark, um, and it is it is quite good. Uh, I think it's. Um, I'm the only one who saw it, right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a little. It's James Seamus's first film as a director, um, and I do feel like he was the screenwriter on many very good Angley movies. We should say, right? And he ran Focus yes. Features for many years. Yes. So he has some bona fides. But I said as a director. No, I know. I'm just giving and, the audience some background <laughs> on on why this guy is a, a big deal. Um, and it is a very well written and i guess it's a very well directed movie but it's also a little bit over directed i don't know i feel like i'm saying the negative things whereas i do feel more positively about this movie than negatively but it does feel a little bit airless because it's everything about it is so meticulously considered in terms of um the production design and the framing and the costumes and the dialogue itself uh is is very uh um wordy and complex and that can be fun on its own um, but sometimes I, w- I, I I felt like I might be getting more out of this if it were a little bit uh, rougher on the edges. Um, do you guys know what I'm, the kind of experience I'm talking oh, about? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, but I will say this. Um, uh, I remember telling you this, uh, Scott, and Tyler, this will perk up your ears. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> the, the centerpiece... The centerpiece scene of the movie, it takes place right smack dab in the middle of the movie, and it is a 16 and a half minute scene of just two people talking. Hey, hey. All <laughs> it's, right. it's, um, uh, the lead is, uh, I'm forgetting his name now. Um, George Clooney. <laughs> Charlie <laughs> Chaplin. Uh, oh, is it Logan Lerman? It's Logan Lerman oh, okay. as the lead. Uh, and then I'm also, I, my mind just went blank. I literally had both these names. Tracy Letts is the is okay. the other guy. Mm, character cool. Tracy Letts, and it's sort of like Lily Gladstone. If and if playwright it, Tr- Tracy Letts, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, if Indignation catches on, this could be a a big step up for him because he's mm. um, he plays the the dean at a school. Logan Lerman plays a uh, a Jewish kid in 1951 who um, goes off to a school in Ohio that is a Christian university. Um, and Tracy Letts plays the um, very Christian, but also very intelligent uh, and intellectual uh, dean of the school. And they butt heads a lot. There's also a romance with him and Sarah Gadon, who's who's fantastic in it. Um, I appreciate the olive branch, by the way. Uh, Christian, but also very intelligent, guys. <laughs> very exciting. Um, 
Well, that's because that's what I want to get at is uh, one thing I do find very interesting about the movie that James Seamus did talk about in the Q&A. I stayed for Q&As at Sundance. It's not something I usually do. They're pretty good on the whole. Yeah. Um, And James Seamus talked about the idea that because the movie is told from Logan Lerman's point of view, we're if we if we're not thinking about what we're seeing, we will see Tracy Letts as the antagonist Mm -hmm. because that's how Logan Lerman sees him. Mm -hmm. But uh, in that scene, nothing that Tracy Letts character says is wrong. Like he's not lying. He's not being manipulative. He's being honest and intelligent and thoughtful. And that's why I brought up his intelligence. No. Um, that it's, it, uh, it, it's a really interesting take that he's, um, he's antagonistic because that's how the character, the main character sees him, but he's a completely relatable and rational person. <laughs> yeah. If uh, nothing else, yeah. more, maybe even more than like the Christian thing. It's like, he's a Dean. <laughs> When's the last time you saw a Dean portrayed <laughs> right, sympathetically? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I feel like I went on too long about that. It's, um, it's worth seeing. It's I, yeah, it's worth seeing. <laughs> Um, it's not it's rad or super right. dope. It's just I just using no. as many '90s terms as possible. <laughs> the uh, never felt younger. We talked about Christ, Christine earlier. The other film about oh, uh, yeah. the same person is called Kate Plays Christine. Yeah. So here's a naughty setup for it. Not naughty like for shame. Right. Um, not naughty. Correct. K N O. I don't know why you're saying are you, it. Are you about to describe a Cinemax movie? K N O T T Y. Naughty. That's the one. Uh, all right. What am I saying? Uh, this is, uh, this stars, uh, Caitlin Scheel, who's another very great, uh, actress of the modern yeah. era. She's been starred in uh, green and, uh, sun don't shine. I think was the other one I've seen her in a few other things. She's amazing. Uh, in this, she also, I think gets killed very early on in your next. That sounds about like the kind of role she would get in uh mumble director <laughs> makes a mainstream movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's me sliding the mumblecore directors who like her, but cast her in small roles. <laughs> um, anyway, so this is a pseudo documentary uh, by a guy named Robert Green, who's really into the whole blurring of the lines between fiction and reality. And I'm sure he hates that term because everybody uses it, but oh well. Uh, this is about her preparing to play the role of Christine Chubbuck, who famously killed herself on TV in 1974. Uh, only the movie that she's preparing for doesn't actually exist, but they go through all the steps of preparing her for that role. She, flies down to Florida where the events happen. She interviews people who knew her at the time, interviews uh, gun salesmen, interviews psychiatrists, and reads book on suicide. And so she really invests herself in this process. And it's very fascinating on that level for just people who are interested in movies to see how much actresses go, go through. And also just uh, <laughs> a very interesting experiment in just how far she'll go for a movie that honestly doesn't exist. Uh, the structure of the movie kind of takes on a familiar form for these type of movies in that it gets really confrontational towards its audience at the end, mm-hmm. uh, which bothered me a little bit. But the rest of it is very strong, especially uh, Shields role in the movie. And I think she really deserves kind of co-authorship of the movie because she so exerts uh, her influence in every uh, scene of the movie. She is a naturally kind of reticent performer. She has kind of a shyness about her that runs in contrast, not only to the role of Christine Chubbuck, who was a reporter of, of a sort and a journalist of a sort, um, but also just the role of kind of an interviewer. And uh, she has to be the face of this documentary of interviewing all these people who knew her. And so she has to kind of push people a little further than she would otherwise be comfortable doing. So it provides this great natural tension and she's just so watchable all the time. And yeah, so I really, I really came away liking it with some minor reservations and I hope it gets picked up. 
Now, I, did did either of you guys know the story of Christine Chubbuck before this? No, uh, I didn't. Yeah, see, I like, did. Yeah, I've, I've been from network. Uh, there's a network connection, but I, I, I swear, like the Christine Chubbuck Wikipedia page is like one of my most like, reread <laughs> Wikipedia pages in history because just because I find the story so fascinating. So I would have loved to have seen either of these Christine yeah, this Chubbuck one movies, especially really confronts like that fascination that people tend to have with it of only being interested in her because of the way she died. Right. Um, and so that level of confrontation works pretty well, I think, uh, because it's one that they're going through too. They're like, they're obviously interested in the story, but when people who knew her are like, you know, she was a good person too. And we really liked having her around. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a real tragedy. They're like, Oh, right. Right. Uh, next up is Kiki. Yeah. Um, uh, so in the, in the, uh, in the Sundance booklet, it sort of, described Kiki, which is this documentary about, um, I don't know if you would still call it like the voguing scene, or I guess they call it the Kiki scene now in New York. These sort of, uh, well, have you guys ever seen the documentary Paris is burning about, um, sort of Harlem drag balls Mm. in the late 1980s? It's, I think it's on Netflix and it's, it's really like one of my favorite documentaries I've ever seen just because it's like, so watchable and fun and sort of full of life. And, um, I wanted to see this movie Kiki because in the Sundance booklet, it sort of described it as a almost sort of, sort of like an unofficial sequel to Paris is burning, uh, which I think is a 1990 movie. So that was whatever, like 25 years ago or, mm-hmm. or something. 26 and, by my count. 26 by your count. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. <laughs> um, and and uh, I think I said this in my review, but yeah, Kiki basically just does what it says on the tin. It's basically like a 2016 remake of this really great documentary from the early 90s. Um, and so, I, you know, it made me, made me wonder, like, is it possible to remake a documentary? Hmm. I don't know because this this almost felt like a documentary remake of this this other film, and I guess the most remarkable part about it is um, how little these sort of dance offs and drag balls in this sort of you know gay subculture in Harlem has has how little it's actually sort of changed in, in such like a long stretch of time. Um, the things that have advanced are sort of uh, the gay characters and there's some trans characters in there too, or they're sort of, um, you know, their own sort of self-confidence and their sort of comfort with their own identity in, in a way where in Paris is burning the sort of drag queens and, um, you know, trans characters in that movie kind of felt like they were, you know, they were comfortable with who they were, but they were also sort of resigned to sort of being on the margins of society. And then, so even though the aesthetics of these weird sort of over-the-top dance competitions are very similar to 26 years on. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that w- what's different is just sort of, um, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a sort of more of a, Paris is Burning was more sort of based around these character studies of these uh, drag queens and these participants and these balls. And um, Kiki is a lot more sort of political. It's, it's kind of, it kind of shows the, the push for these, these folks to sort of 
be a more well integrated part of the urban mainstream. So that so that part is different. But then, like I said, the a lot of the aesthetics of these sort of dance off competitions are are very similar. So it was uh, it's I think it's a movie sort of in conversation with Paris is Burning. But I think it's a you know the two movies are really really interesting, sort of stacked up next to each other, and um, you know they make a good double bill. I'm really interested in the idea of remaking documentaries. <laughs> yeah, I, I gave myself a little chuckle when I imagined that the Up series is just Michael Apted keep he keeps trying to remake Seven Up, but he's like, shit, <laughs> these kids just keep getting older. Um, there was this is kind of it's it's like taking the same. Did you see at Sundance last year? Uh, I can't remember if you saw it. A movie called In Football We Trust. No, um, it's essentially if Hoop Dreams is about working class mm-hmm. uh, or, or lower class black basketball players in Chicago in football. We trust is essentially the same idea, but it's lower class Polynesian football players mm-hmm. in Utah. Um, and that, that's actually a pretty good movie. Uh, but I don't yeah. know. I don't, I don't know if it doesn't, it's not like a remake. It's like, let's take this same template and move it over to this yeah, different milieu. Yeah. yeah. It feels like you can't remake a documentary because since it is, cause you can buy it's very... in the same river twice. <laughs> oh man, you're blowing my mind. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's the Mississippi River. You shouldn't step in the Mississippi. The water is moving very. It'll quickly. be fine. It, It'll yeah. be fine. People die. Um, <laughs> is that? Are you threatening me? Um, well, but when you, you watch think your about, mouth about the Mississippi, <laughs> you'll when see. You think about it. That's <laughs> my family's river. Damn it. <laughs> um, so uh, no, it's uh, what I was thinking about. Is like, well, you, you're not. If you make Dracula, you're not remaking Dracula. You're adapting Dracula all the time. And in that same way, let's say you are inspired by a certain documentary. It's like, I'm going to make, I'm going to remake that. Well, you're just returning to the same material that inspired the first one. So I feel like even if it, even if you were actively trying to remake that documentary, first off, because life is always moving forward, you're not going to be able to do the exact same thing. But at the same time, I don't know. It just feels like, are you more inspired? You obviously you're inspired by the film, but chances are you're inspired by the material that the film is documenting. Right. And so it's, I don't know. It feels like it's like nobody has ever, nobody has remade a Christmas Carol. They just make the, okay. make a Christmas Carol. Anyway. We should either remake a documentary that uses exclusively archival footage or one that uses exclusively reenactments. Oh, that'd be Think great. About that. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> oh, that'd be like shoot new reenactments. Yeah, exactly. Thing. Like touching the void <laughs> or something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Uh, next up was a movie I didn't see, but really wanted to, cause I'm a fan of the filmmaker. It's called little men. Yeah. This is by Ira Sachs who last made love is strange mm-hmm. and previously, uh, keep, keep the, the lights, lights on, on, which I haven't seen, but is in my Fandor queue. Very good. Um, yeah, I'm super eager to check it out cause I really liked love is strange. And I really liked uh, little men. Uh, this is kind of a complex setup, but let's see how far, far I can get through it. Uh, it's about this family in Brooklyn who uh, is mainly centered around the kid who's around, I want to say, 13. His grandfather dies, and so he and his family move into his apartment in Brooklyn, which is over the top of a small shop that is on its way towards going out of business. Uh, unfortunately for the two families, uh, the their two boys become very close friends, and so like love is strange and i'm sure like keep the lights on uh it's very much about the impermanence of certain situations and how the attachments you form as strong as they might be life has its own course and eventually you're gonna end up practically strangers 
Um, and so once that premise kind of sets in, I was like, I am on board with this. Cause that is my kind of premise. Um, and it's just, it's as quietly heartbreaking as it sounds. And there's so many little details that really build the story out from there. The main boy, it seems like he's kind of, uh, about to be struggling with his own sexuality, uh, with the, the kind of things the other boys say about him and the reticence he expresses towards, uh, uh, the other boy he becomes friends with is very into girls and the main boy is very not to put it lightly. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, there's all these small details that really build it out and very well considered world. And just the whole tone of it is very sweet and very well accomplished. And I just loved it. All right. Um, next up is lo and behold, which, yeah. uh, now I tried to see, I'll tell the story. <laughs> I didn't get. I, I, I didn't have a ticket, but uh, the the publicist sent out an email to the uh, people oh, I guess yeah. who were on the press list, saying, "Hey, we have some press tickets uh, for tonight um, for the for the public screening. You know, let me know if you want some." So I was like, "Oh, yeah." I, I emailed her back right away. I said, "I'd be interested," and she said, um, "She replied, uh, what is your outlet again?'" And I was like, "All oh, right, Battleship Pretension." And then she did me the kindness of not replying <laughs> instead of replying LOLOLOL. It's probably what was going on in her mind. So I didn't get to see Lo and Behold. Yeah, uh, it's Werner Herzog's documentary about the internet, which oh, cool. is exactly what it sounds like, and you're either on board with that or not. And uh, he asks questions like, does the internet dream of itself? And other very Werner Herzog concerns. Um, but it's it's really well done. It uh, showed me a lot of the angles that I hadn't known before, hadn't considered before. Um, it kind of has a good variation of tone. Some sections are outwardly comedic. And it's funny the extent to which modern researchers seem to essentially be getting grants to just build awesome toys. <laughs> like he visits <laughs> this group of uh, scientists who are essentially building really smart soccer playing robots. And they're, the entire purpose of their project is to get them to play the best soccer team in the world by 2050 and see if they can beat them. <laughs> And uh, that's the entire purpose of the project. But then the other side that he shows is uh, like internet bullying and how harmful that can be. And he visits this one family who like, I, I can't remember the details of the accident, but basically their daughter had some horrific accident where she got like decapitated. Um, and some video went around of her body and people were like making fun of the incident. Hmm. And so he gets the family to open up about what that experience has been like. But then he twists it even further by this family now believes that the internet is not essentially like actually the antichrist, but because we've seen where they come from in this, we, like we, you can't really laugh at them. He just holds on this shot of them just staring at the camera right after saying that they think the internet is the antichrist. And there's something a little absurd about that. And he's kind of, he's playing with audience reactions in a really interesting way in that moment mm -hmm. uh, that I think pushes this above just kind of like, a cheery, all-encompassing uh, internet documentary. I will say that I hope they re-edit it in some way to say how many chapters there are beforehand, because by the time it gets to chapter eight, uh -huh. it's not a long movie, but the audience <laughs> started to be like, how many more chapters can this really be? <laughs> it's ten, by the way. Okay. A lot of movies have chapters lately. Yeah, that's true. Um, Hunt for the Wilder People did, too. Oh, really? Yeah. Anyway. Um... <laughs> Uh, keep letting this thing close. Next up is uh, Love Song, which I heard uh, nothing but uh, good you things You skipped about. ahead, too, by my count. Oh, I sure, I sure did. The Lobster, Sorry. dude. The Lobster is next. I don't have much <laughs> to say lobster, about it. The Lobster, dude. Did you see it? 
No. Okay. Um, this is another one that has been playing. I mean, it's the movie's almost a year old now. It's uh, played at Cannes last May. Um, so, and it comes out soon, so I'm not going to talk about it too much. Uh, it's pretty good. Um, and uh, it's funny and also kind of upsetting. It's um, one of two movies that I saw uh, at the festival where uh, a dog dies. And uh, that's always very upsetting when a dog dies in a movie. Um, and yeah, they keep killing dogs in movies. Um, I'm pretty sure there's one that I didn't see uh, that I think the dog dies because uh, some people hated it, but I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, The Lobster. It comes out soon. Uh, and I'm not sure that uh, Colin Farrell needed to gain all that weight for the role. <laughs> I, I, I tweeted about this. Like, I kind of think maybe some actors are like, I'll gain weight for this. Like, cause they just want to eat cheeseburgers and milkshakes for a few more couple yeah, months. I, I, I gained a bunch of weight and then I realized I wasn't an actor. So. <laughs> I'm not sure what my excuse was. Uh, anyway, so that's that. Um, yes. And then, and then love and friendship. Yeah, uh, so like, lo and behold, you'll probably know whether this movie's for you right off the bat. It's with Stillman adapting Jane Austen, uh, which I was on board for right away and thought it was a gas. Uh, it's adapted from a novel of hers that is told entirely through letters. So he did a lot to kind of change the premise clearly, but from what I've read, the characters and the basic story stayed the same, but all the dialogue seems to be completely his. Uh, Kate Beckinsale stars as a recent widow who is trying to get a husband for her daughter and if she can herself. And it's just about the way in which she continues to exert control over people despite them not wanting it, but because she's better at speaking in the time in which she lives. It takes place, you know, in Jane Austen times. Um, because she's more capable of navigating that world. Nobody can really oppose her because it's a world built entirely on how one presents oneself. And since she does the best job of that, she's going to come out on a top and it's really, it's really, really funny. Uh, Tom Bennett is kind of in the standout for most people with good reason. Cause he plays what most characters in the film actively describe as a silly man and <laughs> silly men in what I'll call old timey times are always fun. Uh, he has an extended, a uh, sequence in which he marvels at the existence of peas and then <laughs> goes on a long uh, uh, kind of wondering about the wonder of the 12 commandments and okay. various scenes such as that. Now, a um, couple things. Um, the scene about peas, how does it compare to the Mr. Turner scene about gooseberries, <laughs> which is, as of this recording, the greatest scene in the history of cinema. <laughs> I think I prefer this a little bit to the gooseberry scene. Okay. But I, Ooh, I strong words. Um, now, I, I, a lot of people who saw uh, Love and Friendship, I heard say it was it was very funny. Um, are we talking film critic funny <laughs> or funny funny? Mm, that's true. I guess I don't know. I, I could very well be one of these terrible film critics who does not understand comedy. But one other question: yeah. are there any zombies? In uh, no, this, I'm, I'm, <laughs> this is not love and friendship and zombies. I've been made to understand that there's zombies in John in Jane, Jane Austen. Austen. Yeah. yeah, that is uh, the modern interpretation of much of her work. Okay, yeah. it's not the direction what Stillman takes. There's so much about those days we still don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you're forgetting about Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. That's right. Um, which is real. Now we can talk about Love Song. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which I heard nothing but good things about. Yeah, this is great. Uh, it's directed by uh, So Young Kim, who directed Treeless Mountain a couple years ago. She's done some other work, but I have not seen anything else. But I love Treeless Mountain, so I was super excited to check this out. Um, I can, do not know how to pronounce this woman's name. Riley Kyo? Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce right? her name either. Uh, she's, she's a big up-and-comer. She's all over the place. She was in Mad Max, I think. Um 
And so she, she I'm, I'm a fan, but hasn't she kind of been an up and comer for like three years now? Oh, I have no, that my show how behind the times I am, but I, she's just starring in the girlfriend experience to the new TV show, which is okay. why I kind of think of her as like suddenly coming into her own. Uh, but she plays a young mother who is ver- quite young. I mean, she's like 22, 23, whose husband is working uh, either in another country or another state, either he's been, been gone for at least a month. And so she's just having a really hard time of it when her lifelong best friend, Mindy played by Jenna Malone comes to visit and kind of gives her the kind of the release she needs. She helps take care of her daughter. She uh, lets her drink a few times because you know, young mothers, you don't want to just go out drinking every night. It's not, not good form. Um, <laughs> but because she has some support, she's, well, she's able to let loose a little bit, and then they kind of fall into a more complicated sexual relationship that um, neither of them really saw coming, and because they're still fairly young, aren't really able to articulate and define and kind of go after, and so the film becomes kind of about them trying to navigate that and their own resistance towards getting towards that. And I've never been in anything remotely resembling this situation, but it really reminded me of what it was like to be that age and not really understand everything about the adult world you're navigating and everything about your feelings and trying to kind of be on the constant defensive of not being too invested in other people, but you end up sliding into that regardless. So it has a really universal quality and so young Kim is so good at leaving so many moments kind of unspecified that you can kind of fill it in with your own experiences um, so yeah, I thought it was just a wonderful film and very beautifully told. Maggie's plan is next, which is one I didn't see. Yeah. And one I kind of regret seeing for many reasons. Um, <laughs> one is that it comes out in like two months, so I probably shouldn't have wasted a festival time seeing it. And the other is that it's, it's not very good. Greta Gerwig stars as the titular Maggie, whose uh, titular plan may be one of two different things, but who basically concocts these scenarios to try to, Dead, or dictate the path of her life and they don't really work out and so it's a, it's a good overall format she Greta Gerwig's very good in it Ethan Hawke is very good in it uh Julianne Moore is unfortunately less good in it hmm. um but it never really quite finds its footing um it never really I don't know it just never really comes together it's not especially funny even though it tries to be it kind of has it kind of actually feels like a modern Woody Allen movie in a lot of ways it mm-hmm. feels like a first draft but it feels like they, she's still got some great actors to do it and has very strongly defined personalities within that, just doesn't really know what to do with them. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of a disappointment, unfortunately. Hmm. Okay. Big one. Moving on to, yeah, the, the big, well, because no one, none of us saw The Birth of a Nation, the big one for us is Kenneth Lonergan's Manchester by the Sea. Uh, and it's uh, as terrific as you've heard, right? Pretty much. I mean, this was the movie that I was talking about before, which will probably be in my top three of the year, I can't imagine anything much else getting better than it. Um, it's pretty much the reason I went to the festival and I don't regret it at all. Uh, it's incredible top to bottom. I really don't know how much to say about it because I didn't know anything going into it. So I don't really know what counts as a spoiler. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess uh, I'm not sure what we, I feel like we can say that it's about Casey Affleck who is kind of, he works as a janitor for a series of apartment buildings in Boston and suddenly his brother dies. I feel like that's going to be like the premise of the movie. Yeah. His, his older, older brother, I'm guessing yeah. played by Kyle Chandler, um, dies and, um, in his well, in his will names Casey Affleck as the, um, 
caretaker guardian of his yeah. uh, teenage son. Um, and they're all, played wonderfully by Lucas Hedges. Yes, that was uh, yeah. As far as I keep I keep talking about like these like breakout performances. Yeah, like, Lily Gladstone like Lucas Hedges really impressed me. Yeah, uh, in, in this movie. Yeah, but and he and Casey Affleck have a great rapport together. I mean, it seems they have that kind of family rapport where it seems like they've known each other for decades, but never really gotten close. Yeah, they yeah. just have an ease with one another that kind of comes from nowhere, um, yeah. but feels earned. Uh, and yeah, it's it's also super funny. We should say, but yeah. it is incredibly dark in some points too. But yeah, it's very dark, and yeah, it has a there's there's an image in there that uh, I don't I won't spoil, but has uh, like I, it keeps popping up like. Like if you saw, I don't know. It's it's there's a disturbing image uh, in the movie. Um, it's in a police station. Is that, yeah. Uh, is it a dead dog? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I, I saw plenty of dead dogs at Sundance on, on screen. No, there's a there, there's a moment. I guess it's more than an image. It's a it's a moment uh, that keeps popping into my head and upsetting me um, uh, since then. But, uh, but Kenneth Longer is so good at managing those various tones because it is so funny in certain points and also so like sad and hopeless yeah and but the way he navigates it is just like there are times when i was i couldn't believe that he was going between them so quickly yeah yeah um he's like three for three now oh yeah, yeah i mean you time. can count on me as maybe my favorite movie of 2000 and then i loved margaret yeah. or margaret however you want to say <laughs> it um and then uh i've heard such great things about this film that it's just like i guess he's just somebody who is just predisposed to making amazing movies. Well, th- and that's something I wanted to ask was, uh, so I'm with you guys. I think I, and I didn't see this one, but I, I love his other two movies. I think of, uh, Margaret as like a very, very sort of epic yeah. interpretation yeah. of his vision. And whereas you can count me is like more intimate where is I this, this more, and I, and I did, I did say almost exactly that right in my review that this is right in the middle. Okay. I think for a lot of reasons too, because it, the structure is such that, I mean, we've already said that his older brother who dies is played by Kyle Chandler. So it stands to reason that there will be flashbacks in the movie. Yeah. And I think he manages that structure very well. Whereas like you can count on me was kind of all about the past holding on to the present. And Margaret is very like invested in the present this really mixes the two, I think very well. Mm-hmm. And in that way, I think he's gotten more comfortable with the film form. Cause he comes from the stage. Um, and his previous two movies to a certain extent feel like outgrowths of that. And this really feels like he knows how to relate images in a different way. I see. I would say that's pretty, that was pretty well formed in Margaret. Okay. Personally. But I, I do, I do marvel at how as a, as a writer and as a director of actors, he gets, uh, he 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 really gets at a, a realism and, and naturalism, and then with his camera, I'm not saying that he becomes flashy at all, but he really knows how to position. I mean, I, I, his cinematographers obviously uh, get some credit too, but he knows how to pick shots that are that don't um, in any way crowd out or obliterate the naturalism of what's happening on the screen, but still make this feel like you talked about Margaret being epic or operatic. Or yeah. it, it makes it feel like you're like it belongs on a big screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though the moments themselves might be very low key in a lot of cases. Yeah. I think he's just, uh, working in the same model as, you know, classical melodramas, some of the Italians from the fifties or mm-hmm. so. Um, and I, I think, I mean, you mentioned kind of naturalism and realism, but I think the act, the performance style is a little heightened, which I think works well. And 
it has sort of a musical quality to it. I mean, especially in the way people use their bodies. I think of, I, without giving too much away, there's a scene between Casey Affleck and Michelle Williams. They're, I'd say, second kind of big scene together that is all about the fact that they used to be together and can't quite f- figure out how to relate to one another in a way that's not physical. Yeah. And they're kind of going towards each other, going away from each other, and it's really beautifully done. In yeah. That's way- the other scene that keeps coming back to me yeah. that I keep thinking about. Yeah. Also because she was wearing an awesome coat in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Um, so then that... Uh, and I, we didn't even talk about because I don't generally care about this kind of stuff. But in terms of acquisitions, this was a big one. And also, it was Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Netflix picked up some movies, and Amazon picked up some movies. This is the 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 that sort of realm of things is uh, c- coming in at uh, all angles of our culture. <laughs> it's not just taking over television. Yeah. Uh, now you've got Amazon picking up the rights to the movie. It's still going to get a theatrical release. Yeah. Theoretically through someone else. I don't know who's going to take it if they're not going to get a piece of the VOD rights. Right. Yeah. So maybe uh, Manchester by the Sea will be the first, uh, uh, I don't know, um, big awards type movie that, um, yeah only place on uh, your Kindle. Yeah, your Kindle. <laughs> Which might actually, I mean, we spent the last several weeks talking about how frustrating awards are, and so, you know, kind of who gives a shit. In fact, I've been spending years <laughs> talking about that. But at the same time, it does kind of bum me out what I had heard about the film and that it was acquired by Amazon that, uh, you know, a movie like um, Beasts of No Nation, which at the very least was a strong contender for supporting actor, was not nominated for that, even though he just won the Screen Actors Guild, mm-hmm. uh, getting me some good points um, in our uh, right, uh, fantasy Oscar draft. Um, but <laughs> that, but yeah, that, it's, that draft, uh, <clears throat> the season's over, right? Depends got, on if the Academy embraces uh, yeah, the technical categories. The technical categories could swing it. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I feel like Scott's walking away with this thing. It's hard. Right. To, uh, anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> so it's. Uh, I, I think it's. It, it would be exciting. Like I was. I was sad that Amazon grabbed uh, Manchester by the Sea because I feel like that is actually a way to guarantee that it will get less exposure. Um, yeah, I think it just depends on what if anyone picks it up for theatrical and what distributor yeah. does. Um, yeah. And I hope they do because it plays wonderfully with the crowd. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. All right. Let's move on to a movie that will probably play wonderfully in a crowd, but I mean that in a snobby uh, <laughs> way. Um, uh, I was really let down by M- Morris from America because I was a big fan of Chad Hardigan's last movie, um, Martin Bonner. I can't remember what the first two uh, words This, this is. is. This is Martin Bonner. Uh, I like that, that quite that a bit. That was Martin Bonner. <laughs> And Morris from America has uh, an interesting setup in that it's about um, Morris is a 13-year-old boy, 13-year-old African-American boy living in Heidelberg, Germany. Um, and he's so he's not only the only American in his class, he's also the only black kid in his class. Um, his mom has recently died. He's moved to Germany because his dad, played by Craig Robinson, got a job coaching uh, the Heidelberg soccer team. Um, and so it's, I guess, a fish-out-of-water type of comedy, but it's mostly a coming-of-age story. And the problem is that once you get past the, um, the the interesting hook of that premise, it's a pretty by the numbers um, coming of age uh, movie, and it it felt like the things that I liked about this is Martin Bonner um, were were lost. I feel like Chad Hardigan was is trying to sort of um, move toward 
having you know martin bonner the character was what supposed to be in his late 50s early 60s um now he's making a movie about a 13 year old boy and so he become his 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 the 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 camera and the editing become more dynamic and i guess that's a good choice it's fit it's fitting but i also feel like hardigan wasn't able to translate his self <laughs> himself in like through that process of having a more amped up uh visual style and uh it just felt kind of kind of bland when it was all over the kid's good marquis christmas is his name um it's a good performance but uh I, I wish i could recommend it but uh i do think that a lot of people will like it <laughs> Uh, just not me. A lot of dipshits. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of dipshits will eat this up with a spoon. <laughs> All right. Uh, My Friend from the Park is the next movie. Yeah, you talked about how you saw two movies with dead dogs. I saw two movies with young moms. Um, this is a movie, or I guess not young mom in this case, new mom, though. Did you see, we haven't talked about celebrity sightings. I saw, like, nobody. I it, saw Slash. Oh, yeah? That's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, the biggest, uh, the only thing close to a celebrity I saw that wasn't like part of a Q and A or anything was I saw Alex Ross Perry in line for a movie. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, the uh, the bar at the DoubleTree was the place to be apparently. Okay. Because I saw Sam Neill there. I saw Margot Martindale there. All right. I saw Julianne Nicholson nice. there, and I saw megastar Pat Healy <laughs> at the bar at the DoubleTree. <laughs> Now, when you saw Sam Neill, that could have been my dad, because my dad and Sam Neill <laughs> look almost exactly the same. Maybe it was. And they were both in Park City at that time. Uh, maybe I don't know was. why you brought this up now. <laughs> um, there was something you said that made me think of it. I was talking uh, about movies with new mothers. <laughs> yeah, and there was something, some turn, turn of phrase All right. that you said that made me think of it. Uh, or maybe it was just the fact that uh, Tyler got up and left the room, and it kind of felt like the mood shifted. Um, anyway... Uh, my friend from the park. Yeah. Uh, so this is also about a new mom who is, uh, looking for a friend, aren't we all? Um, but in this case, she latches on to what seems like the wrong woman. It's another woman about her age who's with a young child, uh, and they get along at first, but within the first couple hours of their meeting, this other person is, uh, pretty much forcing her to dine and dash from a restaurant. (laughs) Um, so and then asking if she can borrow her car, even though they just met. And the more she kind of asks around to the other moms in the park uh, about her, it seems like there's something, something kind of fishy with this woman. And it really plays up the paranoia of, uh, uh, having an infant in your care in like have every second, the infant could basically kill itself by just existing. <laughs> and, uh, so it plays it up very well, both directly and then indirectly and in having this kind of, paranoia subplot of this new friend uh and then the director anna katz uh, twists it in in a very interesting way that kind of encourages the audience's empathy and generosity and so she plays with all these various tones really well and it was a really engaging movie i don't think it has distribution but i hope it gets picked up because it's it's really something something interesting um, I mentioned earlier that I was at the first movie opening night at the Eccles. Uh, that movie was a documentary about Norman Lear called Norman Lear, just another version of you. Um, and I, uh, was really excited to see it because I, uh, find Norman Lear very interesting. I'm a fan of, uh, you know, most of his TV shows and, um, this didn't disappoint. It's a, it's a very good, uh, a bit conventional, but still very, uh, good, interesting documentary, uh, about the life of Norman Lear and, and his work and his sort of journey from, you know, he was a, uh, uh, World War II, um, uh, like pilot and then, you know, became a comedy writer and then went on to be the creator and pr- executive producer of like hot topic 
sitcoms, you know, that <laughs> the hot topic chain, <laughs> right. Of, uh, <laughs> gothware, um, retailers, uh, what the way, well, yeah, what the term hot topic used to mean, but he, I mean, he made like <laughs> you know, all in the family and Maud and the Jeffersons, which took on, uh, social issues that weren't really being addressed and made them very funny. Um, and it even uh, tackles good times and how good times like wasn't very good. It's like the not very good Norman Lear uh, show. Is that the dynamite show? Yeah. Okay. And that's kind of, I guess what cool. happened is, um, and then they, um, uh, one of the people interviewed and I can't remember who, um, but claims that, uh, good times was a show about black people, but it was for white people. Mm. Whereas the Jeffersons, um, in its sort of, uh, aspirations, um, was much more embraced uh, by black people and uh the Jefferson's is a really funny show um and uh yeah this is a it's a it's a good movie Norman Lear is a, a it's amazing the guy's in his 90s and he's still like not as he's still alive but he's still you know <laughs> was he there yeah he was there okay. um he came out afterwards um uh and he's still like sharp and like agile I mean I'm not saying he's like <laughs> He's not doing like layups. He did a gymnastics display in the middle of the Q and A. It was incredible. A a dazzling parkour display. (laughs) (laughs) But like, I feel like he stands up straighter than I do. Um, Yeah, and he's he's still very funny. His first, you know, the movie's over two hours long, and so they bring him out as soon as it's over. And the first thing he says is, "You have no idea how bad I have to take a leak." (laughs) Um, uh, And yeah, it's uh, definitely very good. Uh, I don't know what else to say. Um, I've heard people say that that would make like a good American master episode or something. It is. I think it's going to be. All right. Maybe that's where I got that from. Yeah. I I, I think it will be on PBS. Cool. Um, okay. Uh, nuts. Nuts. (laughs) is the next movie. Yeah. Nuts. (laughs) On nuts. (laughs) Um, so this, this was an interesting, this was an interesting one. This was the first thing I saw, uh, when, when I got into Park City on the Friday that I flew in, it was at the Temple screening room, which is a nice theater, but it's, it's hard to, it's hard to get to cause they don't run enough shuttles out there. Um, but it's a, it's an animated documentary. It's mostly animation, but it has some sort of, uh, talking head interviews and, um, a little bit of archival footage, um, but it's it's kind of this uh, very sort of old timey Americana tale of this uh, sort of crackpot surgeon in early nineteenth or uh, early twentieth century Kansas, I think it was, and his name was uh, I think it was Brinkley. I might be getting that wrong, but uh, but there's basically this Doctor Brinkley character who. Um, hit upon this uh, this sort of technique or procedure, I guess, uh, to cure um, males' impotency, uh, which involved kind of taking uh, goat gonads and <laughs> sort of grafting a small part of them onto uh, the scrotum of his human custom, gonads. Human gonads, yeah. <laughs> the, the old the old goat to human gonad switcheroo. <laughs> um, so it. You know, he's and and apparently this was uh, this was really, you know, on the surface it seemed like this procedure was working, and um, and he kind of amassed like a, a, a good deal of notoriety and fame off of this, and sort of in parallel became um, 
sort of an early radio pioneer broadcaster. Mm-hmm. He sort of had his own radio station where he would play sort of hillbilly music and uh, sort of country and roots music and had, you know, basically de- developed the precursor to like a lot of talk radio formats and stuff. So it's, it's just, it's just sort of a story of like one of these just big, like 20th century American lives. You know, you, you read these stories of like these old timey guys sometimes. And it's just like, they were able to just cram so much into like a single lifetime where they were Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs and, you know, surgeons and media moguls and, you know, business people. And, so it kind of just skips along. It's like very light in tone, sort of telling this dude's story. Uh, and then it kind of takes a turn sort of in the last third where it gets a lot darker and a lot more sort of complicated and uh, a, a lot more interesting where it sort of, um, sort of rewinds and takes a look at everything you just saw from sort of a different perspective and sort of explores whether or not uh, this this Doctor Brinkley character is a fraud, and hmm. you know if if so, how did he get to this point, and what are the repercussions of uh, of of you know basically the snake oil that he was selling? So um, it 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 ended up being a lot more of a profound uh, profound film than it initially seemed like it was going to be because, like I said, for the first two thirds, it kind of skips along. It's just kind of like ripping yarn about this weird dude in this weird time uh, in American history. And then, you know, gets a lot, gets much deeper, a lot quick, like very quickly towards the end. So uh, it, it, I ended up kind of walking out kind of um, so, sort of very impressed with what I, what I'd just seen. All right. Um, let's move on to a movie that uh, I, being who I am, by all rights, I should have hated this movie. Uh, it's called Other People, and it is exactly, in many ways, the kind of melancholy but sardonic, weepy, dysfunctional family dramedy. It did sound terrible. Uh, I was say that. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that tends to, you know, this is my first Sundance, but I know what kind of movies tend to come out of Sundance, and this felt, felt like a Sundance movie in that way. Um, and I ended up uh, kind of liking it. It's um, I ended up liking it a, a fair bit, actually. Um, uh, Jesse Plemons uh, stars as a um, gay New York comedy writer who uh, is from Sacramento and comes back to Sacramento um, to uh, be with his mom, Molly Shannon, who is um, dying of, uh, of cancer. And uh, his dad, played by Bradley Whitford, um, is not... Uh, cool with his son being gay and doesn't talk about it and doesn't accept it. And also his career, you know, he had a uh, comedy central bought a script from him and then it fell through. Um, So he's in a state of flux and also his mom is dying. And the movie has a great cast. I just named a a few people there, but there's a bunch more uh, great people in it. But what really saves it for me from being uh, dismissed is all the things I dismissed it as at the beginning (laughs) is that it's legit funny. Like that, that's what makes it, uh, and again, funny is subjective. Some people might not feel the same way. Now, now is it a movie critic funny or, <laughs> uh, well, I think it's, I mean, the guy, this guy is a UCB guy and an SNL writer. And, um, I think it's, it's that kind of funny. Okay. So, yeah. You know, it's so interesting when watching Friday night lights, who would have thought that the most 
uh, malleable, versatile actor <laughs> was going to be uh, Landry. Yeah. You know, like you see him in something like Black Mass or this. Yeah, yeah. And it's just... I feel like uh, he, he seemed like see Fargo season two. I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, or Breaking Bad or yeah. the yeah. master. Yeah. Well, the stuff like the master and Breaking Bad, that seems like something closer to who he was, uh, or the kind of thing he could do in Friday night lights. But when you see him as, you know, Boston mobster or, you know, uh, gay comedy writer, it's just, it, it I don't know. He, he's a, I would not have expected that of the, I mean, I guess Michael B. Jordan is like the real breakout there, but, uh, yeah, yeah. but I would not have expected that of all the, the younger, uh, characters that he more so even than like Taylor Kitsch maybe, uh, is the one that has gone on to uh, yeah. greater success. Well, he's made good, good choices, I think mm-hmm. in terms of roles. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, 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 I hesitate to recommend other people because I know that, like Scott said, it sounds it sounds dreadful. <laughs> sounds um, real mean early. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, th- th- this was I think this was the only one that my my parents actually saw during the festival, and, and I, I hear they didn't like it. And yeah, they they gave it a big two two big thumbs down from Larry and Carol. They <laughs> <laughs> bought the big foam hands. So that, yeah, uh, yeah. Just gave it a thumbs down. That um that balances it out then. But I I did think it was funny, and you can't. I mean, uh. I love Molly Shin, uh so much, even though... Have I told the story on the podcast about getting the world's most awkward hug from Molly Shannon? I think you haven't told it in a while. I've I don't it. recall the story. Okay. Okay, I was a, P- I was a, a PA, that's production assistant, uh, an office PA on a movie called Year of the Dog, directed by Mike White, starring Molly Shannon. And uh, at the time, Molly Shannon and her family lived in New York City, and the movie was shooting here in Los Angeles. Uh, and so the production had rented her and her family for the summer that we were shooting a house and two cars for her and her husband to get their kids around and, and stuff like that. And so it was the last, the, the, her last day, we, you know, we still had more work to do, but, uh, she, she and her family were packing up and moving back, uh, uh, going back to New York. And so the APOC, that's the assistant production coordinator. Um, <laughs> thanks David. Uh, drove me and another, uh, PA, um, again, production assistant, um, to the house that they're packing up to pick up these rental cars so that we could take them back and return them to the rental place. So we go, we knock on the door and Molly Shannon comes out, you know, they're packing up the stuff or kids are there. And, um, she, uh, you know, the Amy, the, the APOC had helped her pick out the neighborhood when she was first, you know, uh, when they knew she was going to be staying there. Um, so she had known Amy had walked around the neighborhood and, and, and um, found out where the, where she was going to be living. She had known Amy, and uh, the other PA uh, Manuel had um, driven her around to to from you know uh, from the studio to the set and back and forth. So she knew Manuel and, and and me. She had been in the production office once in <laughs> her costume, which is a like a pajamas and a nightgown, and said hi to me, like introduced herself and said hi. That was the only exchange we had had for the three and a half months that she'd been out here. And so she hands the keys to us and she says, Amy, thank you so much, and gives Amy a big hug. And she's like, 
and Manuel, <laughs> thank you so much. And I'll it miss gives, you most of all, yeah, David. Gives a big hug. And then says to me, doesn't know my name, but clearly a precedent has been established that there are hugs being passed out here. And so I tried to say with my eyes, like, it's okay, it's okay. Like, I don't need it, but we, like, she's like, no, we're doing this. And so we leaned in, and it was a, a, the most awkward hug I've ever had. Wow. Um, That's very painful to even listen to. Yeah. I fr- I'd forgotten that uh, I'd forgotten the the line aspect, just moving down the line. <laughs> yeah, I was and the, you last were the next in line. one. Okay, yeah. okay, um, let's move on. Uh, Rams is a movie, an Icelandic movie um, that uh, I did not see at Sundance, but I saw. Otherwise, uh, it, it played at Sundance. It's out in limited release now, and you can read a review on the website. Uh, Resilience is a movie that I saw at Sundance and wish I hadn't. Um, <laughs> it's a documentary that the the subject matter is important, and I think um, in in a way it's worth seeing because it's about the idea that um, what they call um, uh, ace aces uh, uh, adverse childhood experiences is that the what it stands for the idea that having um, a bad bad uh, incidences in your home or whatever as a child can lead to um, both physical and mental health problems later in life. And so there's programs based on these tests that um, are being implemented in certain states, like I think Washington State and Ohio are implementing these in like grade schools of trying to find out and address, let kids know like if there's something going on in your home that fits the, you know, the, the fits this list, uh, you know, talk about it. This isn't normal to help address early in early in early childhood things um that could uh by being addressed in early early childhood could save them a lot of um pain and heartache and money and all sorts of things uh later in life and um make them you know potentially better members of society it's all it's very important work the problem is that the documentary itself plays like a goddamn infomercial it's overly busy with its graphics like uh there's a one of the doctors is like you know if we hear about this sort of thing we'll recommend home visits and then the word home visits <laughs> like a giant chiron like star, shoots onto the screen star wiped a home visit <laughs> yeah, yeah um it's it's so corny it's it's so amateurish and corny and it makes the cheesy music and the overly busy effects makes these doctors who have dedicated their lives <laughs> to this incredibly important thing it makes them sound like hucksters it makes them sound like they're full of shit it's like we rolled into town in our wagon <laughs> yeah. and we're selling uh, you know healing for children yeah um so it's it's really i mean i'm laughing but it is disappointing that um such an important thing has been given uh such a shoddy treatment um moving on uh another award winner of some i it won the i think world dramatic competition i think uh, called sandstorm it's uh, uh a movie about it's an infuriating movie um a fictional narrative uh about um a a bedouin girl um who is in love with a boy from another tribe and um that doesn't go well for her, <laughs> but it's more about the way that these sort of um, patriarchal societies um, perpetuate themselves by the everything that is good in a person's life in terms of family and their religion and 
and and everything that they that they subsist on is also completely tied up in the idea of patriarchy and arranged marriages and um, the women having no voice um, other than to turn on one another uh, when they shouldn't. Uh, and it's an infuriating but very effective illustration of how um, this sort of uh, this sort of thing gets uh, perpetuated and, and, and so deeply rooted in how hard it is um, to remove yourself from it. Because removing yourself from the bad things is also removing yourself from all the good things. Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a really really good movie, and it also it definitely picks at this sort of uh, liberal. I think liberals like myself tend to want to see people in the third world as you know you want to be forgiving in a certain way. Like you know that's their that's their culture, that's their religion. We want to be open uh, about this stuff, but. Uh, it has a really shitty effect on these women and uh, it's uh, it's a movie that tempts you to just say uh you know what fuck these bedouins yeah <laughs> fuck these bedouin men it's it's literally men. this idea of like some things cannot be tolerated you know like we're trying to be tolerant there's nothing wrong with that as right. an as an instinct but some things just need to be stopped yeah, so we should uh, go in there and straighten these men out. We need some boots on the ground, Dave. <laughs> that's my vote. All right, so that's Sandstorm. Let's move on to Suited. Suited. Yeah, we, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this one. Which is too bad because it sounded so interesting to me. Uh, yeah, it's Much sa- like the Illinois parable. Yeah, it sounded interesting to me, too. And, um, you know, it, 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 was, it was sort of neat because um, Jenny Connor and Lena Dunham from Girls are producers on this. So they were there and they gave a like quite a nice uh, Q&A afterwards. Uh, but basically this is a documentary about um, this sort of Brooklyn-based uh, tailoring shop whose clientele is mostly um, uh, transgendered customers. Uh, most, uh, all, all sorts of different, different folks along the, the gender spectrum, but mostly uh, female to, to males and who are you know, having a hard time uh, you know, um, you know, fashion is sort of like an expression of, you know, done right. Fashion is sort of an expression of, uh, the person that you feel inside. And when the person who you feel inside is, you know, in conflict with maybe how you're presenting, um, you know, that just extends to, that just extends to the clothes that you're wearing. So, uh, it kind of just like glances on, on all that stuff, but the, I, I didn't end up liking it that much because I felt like at the end of the day, it kind of just seemed like a, you know, you were talking about resilience seeing like, seeming like an infomercial. It kind of just uh-huh. ended up seeing like a commercial, like, like branded content for, uh-huh. for the, the shop that uh, I think it's called Bindle and keep. That's uh, the focus of, of the movie. So, um, cause you know, it kept doing these like sort of loving, you know, screen grab pans over there, like nice, very like, you know, very, uh, you know, farm to table looking website and stuff. And like, and they kept, you know, words, it's like 40% off and stuff like, like, like like, just, just about that sort of stuff. So, um, so that kind of like offer code Sundance. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, um, and, but you know, the, they have maybe like a half dozen, you know, people they are follow whose stories that they follow and um 
you know, all of their personal journeys and their stories are very, you know, very interesting and moving and very touching. Um, felt like, you know, there's maybe not a lot of new ground that was mined in that area. Um, and then, you know, I would have, I would have liked to see him go deeper on the fashion stuff, but it's, it's sort of just, uh, very surface level and doesn't really get into the sort of details that I think you would need to really make a, like a documentary with this, this topic, uh, really sort of jump off the screen. So it was a little bit of a disappointment. Okay. Now earlier when I was talking about hunt for the wilder people, I said it was one of my three favorites in the festival along with certain women and Manchester by the sea would obviously be the other one. Uh, I'm demoting hunt for the wilder people. Oh, okay. I've decided that it's in fourth place. <laughs> Suddenly this movie sucks. Uh, it's in fourth place. <laughs> Number three for me has got to be Swiss Army Man, um, which... Isn't that that dumb farting corpse movie? Here's the thing. You're, being, you're doing that dumb voice. It is that. It is absolutely <laughs> yeah. that. And it is de- what I like about it is its brazenness and daring you to like it despite the fact that it is, no, no. that it, it has a, it, it's, it's like a hundred minute fart joke in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, that's also incredibly hopeful and incredibly touching um, and has a bizarre, but in retrospect, really note perfect performance from Daniel Radcliffe as the farting corpse. Uh, it, not uh, since Terry Kaiser, uh, have we had such a good corpse performance? Um, I don't know. Who that is. Is that it's Bernie? Bernie. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it, if you don't know the, the story, Paul Dano, uh, is the star. He plays a guy who's been shipwrecked, I guess. Um, you don't really get the backstory. Um, there's just hints of how he ended up in this little desert Island. Uh, and he's already, he's, he's despairing. He's all ready to hang himself when suddenly another body, um, washes up on shore um, and it's Daniel Radcliffe and he's dead and it's a very effective makeup of a dead, there's dead Harry Potter there on the shore. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, his corpse keeps expelling gas. Um, what does that and, sound like? <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> no. Um, I will give it like the, um, Paul Dano, like he's ready to kill himself. He sees his body. And he's so excited. He runs over and he's like, uh, like so disappointed that it's that the person is dead. And then the first fart happens and Paul Dano kind of under his breath goes, that's funny. <laughs> that's pretty funny. <laughs> um, but uh, then it gets weird because um, then it gets yeah, weird. Yeah, well, because then Paul Dano realizes that the farting is so uh, powerful that he can ride Daniel Radcliffe's body like a jet ski to the mainland. But then they're still stuck in the woods and they have to fight their way, like find their way through the woods. Uh, and over the course of time, Daniel Radcliffe, I'll say Manny is the character's name. Um, it, it becomes, he, he keeps being more animated and ambulatory and more alive, or possibly this is just Paul Dano going insane with starvation and, uh, hallucinating all of it. Um, but it's, Basically, I feel like the point of the movie is that human existence is gross and weird, but it's also really beautiful and uh, rare, and those two things don't exist separately from one another. It it embraces all of uh, what it means to be human day to day. Um, So it's, you know, 
emotions and love and longing and uh, innovation and also farts and boners. Uh, again, it's, this movie has me saying words that I don't say. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's so against everything that I would think I uh, like Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what you're saying is, if I'm out and about and somebody just lets one go, like in public, I should say thank you. I Honestly, love you. Again, You're beautiful. You are, again, you are joking, but that is, you know what? It's, uh, that almost, essentially that almost happens. I'm, <laughs> sa- I'm saying it with a joking tone, but at the same time I get what you're saying and it sounds yeah. kind of fascinating. Yeah. I, and I, I, I liked it a lot. And the, then I keep thinking I like it more and more and it just, yeah, moved up to uh, third place. So, um, yeah, Swiss army man, uh, got picked up by a 24. So, um, they'll, that's like, cool. that They're company cool. is like, nailing it like they're doing yeah. great stuff yeah yeah so that's good all right uh moving on to oh it's me again um the final <laughs> one final one for me um and this one was not on my radar at all and, uh, until twitter started uh, lighting up about it and i'm so glad i saw it uh it's uh, a horror movie called under the shadow i hesitate to say that it's an iranian horror movie it takes place in iran in tehran but i don't think it was shot there at all i don't mm-hmm. think that they could um shot it, and of course Kern County, yeah. <laughs> obviously. No, I, th- I, um, uh, I think some of it um, was shot in the UK and some of it in Jordan, um, from what I read about it. Uh, but it takes place in Tehran in the early 1980s, so right after the um, the revolution and during the Iraq-Iran War. Um, and the main character is a, is a mother who was a university student, a, a medical student, before the revolution, but was also very politically active, um, and not um, in a way that the people who won the revolution like. Uh, so she has been barred from returning to school. So she is now uh, a housewife, essentially. Uh, her her husband, who agrees with her politically, but just by virtue of being male and from not having protested as much, um, got to finish, go back and finish uh, his medical degree and is now a working doctor. So she's um and they and they had a a daughter and now she's uh a, a she's a housewife when she wants to be uh, a doctor but the it's the this new the, the this new way of things in in Iran is telling her that this is what she should be this is her role she needs to cover up she needs to be um that she needs to stay at home um all these things that she needs to do and then the her husband gets called away to because it's during the Iraq war gets called away to be a doctor for the be a medic essentially for the war it's in it's in it's involuntary he is summoned to do this and so it's um uh it's just her alone with her daughter and um the movie implies that the bombing by the Iraqis brings some spirits with it. Um, spirits known as jinn, D-J-I-N-N, which apparently are, um, yeah, uh, they're sort of like angels, but bad, mm-hmm. right? So it, it ties I, I, I know about that because uh, a computer game that I played in the early <laughs> okay. 90s, yeah. Um, so this, they're evil spirits, but it is, it's very tied into islam in that way so mm. she's being haunted by islam in a way if you want to be overly literal about it uh, but she has to protect her daughter from these uh these evil spirits and um everything i just said sounds very heavy and allegorical and it is but it's also a really effective horror movie mm. um and this is one i think netflix uh picked up oh, so cool. um you will be able to see it and i think uh 
mean, a lot of people, I think we, we haven't really talked about the, uh, Sundance echo chamber of people like overpraising <laughs> things. And so it was getting a lot of, it's the new Babadook. It's not that good, <laughs> but it is in that it's about a mother taking care of her mm-hmm. child and protecting her child from, uh, uh from a, you know, ghosts and shit. Uh, and the fact <laughs> that it's really scary. It is very much like the Babadook in that, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it'll be a good, a good Netflix. How, how legit are the scares? Like, like how legitimately scary is it? We're not. Um, it, now I would say, yeah, it, it is legit. I, mean, I, I wrote a thing, uh, a little br- small editorial on the website months ago about, uh, in defense of jump scares, because there are a lot of jump scares mm-hmm. in Under the Shadow. I know some people dismiss them out of hand, but I think it's a really uh, effective technique when used um, correctly. And so I guess it depends on your tolerance for jump scares, because there's more than a few in, in this. Okay. Cool. Look, I'm done. We got two more movies. <laughs> yeah, we're almost there. Uh, we are X, something I was ex- I was interested in. Yeah. I uh, First of all, have you guys ever heard of X Japan, this I band? Not, X Japan? This. Yeah. Well... Based on the footage in this, uh, the the this movie We Are X, it's a documentary about this um, sort of Japanese uh, prog metal band who. Uh, so appa- they don't just do Japanese covers of X songs. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, no, they don't do that at all. <laughs> not not even one. Um, but uh, they're apparently like massive, like this massive international band, and they've been active since their early eighties. And oh wow, you know they have. Um, you know, tons of archival footage and B-roll in this movie that just shows people going crazy for this band all over the world. They're playing in stadiums. They're, you know, getting chased like it's a hard day's night. They're, it's, um, you know, they're apparently like a real deal. So I, I was, uh, I was, I was mostly just sort of like impressed that I'd never, never heard of this band once. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I, I think, I think in my review, I, I kind of just, um, equated this to a feature length behind the music episode of this band. And that's, that's essentially what it is. So if you're familiar with the rhythms of, of, of behind the music where, you know, it's the, the humble beginnings and then the meteoric rise to fame and then tensions within the band coupled with, you know, some drugs and infighting, um, people drifting away, people dying, uh, people sort of reconciling and coming back together. It kind of hits, it hits all of those beats, um, pretty, pretty faithfully and pretty predictably. But, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, a music fan and I, I always loved those behind the music episodes. So I did like scratch that itch, but, um, you know, those are, those are always more effective when you're familiar with the band. So just coming in cold, not knowing anything about this, uh, this phenomenon of this uh, strange sort of Japanese dream theater uh, type band—it was—it was a little a little tough to sort of wrap my mind around. But um, you know, I don't think there's a lot more to the movie other than other than that. But uh, I imagine if you're a fan of uh, X Japan, it's you know this is an invaluable sort of document of of their career. Um, and it does, it, it is being distributed by someone. I don't know. I don't remember uh, who, yeah. but I know I got an email. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, 
And finally, we end with Wiener Dog. Who's is that? That's me. Uh, yeah, this is the new movie by Todd Salons. It's about a Wiener Dog who gets passed around. Not passed around like they keep going back to him, but he, he goes between four different owners. So it's kind of four short films in one. Uh, the first is about a little boy. The second is about uh, Greta Gerwig, who plays a, uh, what do you call it, a veterinarian who kind of kidnaps the dog and uh, is reconnecting with an old friend from high school. The third, Dan DeVito, plays a screenwriting professor. And boy, did that section ring true to film school. <laughs> um, and then the fourth, uh, Ellen Burstyn, plays an old woman who's. Uh, definitely at the end of her life and so much so that she names the dog uh, cancer. Um, it is, and the comedic tone is right in line with that last bit, by the way. It's very dark, but very funny. Uh, if you don't like seeing bad things happen to dogs on screen, do not see this movie. Uh, but I hope for that crowd that the intermission in the middle of the movie leaks out in some fashion in which the dog is just walking across various green screen backgrounds from like a highway to a desert, to a stripper stage <laughs> to like the North pole while the ballad of the wiener dog plays in the background <laughs> and is probably, I laughed a lot at a good deal of movies in Sundays. That's probably the funniest thing I saw was that intermission. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I don't really know what else to say about it. It's a Todd Salons movie. It hates everything and everybody, but it is very funny in doing so. Apparently it hates Heather Matarazzo, who played Don Wiener in Welcome to the Dell House, because uh, she got recast Well, a Gerwig. Yeah, I don't. I haven't seen Welcome to the Dollhouse, but that's something Todd Salons did before right. with uh, Life During Wartime, which right. was, took the same characters from Happiness. Um, and here, actually, it's <coughs> a step further because he's not only recasting Don Wiener, he's resurrecting her because Don Wiener, in, <laughs> in palindromes, Don Wiener had committed suicide. Well, all right then. Okay, that was a good place to end. <laughs> yeah, good call. Do you have any other uh, Sundance thoughts or experiences? Uh, I wish I hadn't been sick so that I could have gone. Uh, I had a really fun time in in Park City. Um, I look forward to going um, again in the future and trying more um, eating and drinking establishments than the like yeah. three that I kept going back to. I spent so much time at that double tree bar because it was like, there's wifi. <laughs> it's cl- like I can sit down everywhere. had wifi, man. Yeah. The squatters grill had wifi. Yeah. I went to squatters. Yeah. We went to squatters two different Separately. nights, but with, with the same person, <laughs> same person. Um, yeah, and then um, I had an awesome burrito. What was the, the burrito place you told me about? Alberto's. Alberto's? Yeah. Very good burrito. Very good late night burrito after seeing Hunt for the Wilder People. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was it was a good time. All right. Anything else? <laughs> so, no, I'll, I'll reiterate my regret uh, <laughs> for not being able to go. Yeah, well, just think next year when we do this. The episode is going to be 25% longer. <laughs> Maybe we'll all see the same movies next year. Yeah, let's try Maybe. to do that. Yeah. All right. Uh, oh, I did check out some of the VR stuff. You guys see the VR stuff? I did not. That's Virtual cool. reality? Yeah. Neat. Convincing. A bear sniffed in my face, and it really felt like it was there. That's that <laughs> bear from The creepy. Revenant? It was the exact bear from The Revenant. Oh, man. Watch out for that one. Yeah. All right, um, that's it. Yeah. There's a bear attack in Swiss Army Man, too, by the way. Uh, so uh, chapters and bear attacks. That's uh, freaking that's bears, man. Um, okay, you can find us at battleshipretention.com. That's where reviews of almost everything we talked about today. Scott wrote his reviews for some other website, um, <laughs> which I'm sure he'll plug in a second. But uh, all everything I wrote and everything Matt wrote is um, up at battleshipretention.com. So continue your uh, learn more about these Sundance movies there, um, and email me and Tyler at David at battleshipretention.com or Tyler at battleshipretension.com. Tyler has a uh, a podcast called more than one lesson mm-hmm. what are you doing over there 
Well, we're covering some uh, we're covering some Oscar nominees this week. We talk about Room, and then next week we will be talking about Bridge of Spies, and the week after we will discuss Inside Out. So it's just going to be a big celebration of the Oscars in February. All right, uh, my other podcast is about television. It's called Hey Watch This. This week, Paul and I are talking about the Venture Brothers and the X Files, the new season ten. X-Files, as opposed to the classic X-Files, which we mm. talked about a couple weeks ago. Where can people find you guys? Uh, let's go, Scott, to my right. All right. I'm on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow. I'm also at CriterionCast.com, where I'm posting my Sundance coverage. It's that other website. It's pretty cool, though. Um, I also host the mainline episodes there, and we recently expanded our lineup, so we have tons of podcast content out there. If you haven't checked out CriterionCast in a while, I get on it. And yet I still haven't yeah, been a guest. I was going to say, I, like, more I more feel more like... Podcasts. I realized the other day no. why I haven't specifically invited you is because we record at, like, 5.30 in the evening, and I know you're still oh, at work yeah, then. Yeah, I'll be at work. You know who's available? <laughs> yeah. Tyler Smith. It's me! For more than one lesson. <laughs> That's right. And uh, worth playing for, the Survivor. That's right. Are, are you guys... Is Criterion going to release Survivor? <laughs> Have you ever seen the the four episodes of Cheers cover? (laughs) Wait, what? People make these mock Criterion covers for like various movies they love, and then somebody did one for four episodes of Cheers, (laughs) (laughs) and it's just Cliff just smiling. (laughs) It's his big face. Sounds great. It's so great. Uh, Matt, where do people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at mpm warren. Two R's and Warren. and I uh, make videos and write blogs for Film Independent. You can find those at filmindependent.org. Your video uh, of just very cursory uh, Sundance coverage was uh, delightful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, people should check that out if you want to see me get snowed on and <laughs> run around Sundance. And yeah. point out the church where your parents were married. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that was very, very sweet. Yeah. All right. Good. We ended on something sweet as opposed to suicide. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening. Until now. <laughs> we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 